The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. Hello, Adam. Hello, Joe. How you doing? I'm pretty good. It's good to see you. It's nice to meet you, man. It's nice to be, uh, I've been a fan of your work for a long fucking time. And it's always weird when you meet someone that you listen to their music or you've seen their stuff and you're like, oh, you're just a normal human being. There you are. A little whacked out, but yeah. <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, like, I remember watching Mr. Jones on uh, MTV, and uh, I, I, I love that fucking video, man. And I love that you dancing in that, was it like a living room or something like that? Yeah, yeah. I'm like, I, I want to be that free. Like, you seem so loose. You were so in the moment. I remember thinking that. I was remember talking to a friend of mine that that uh, that night after a, a show. I was at a bar. I was like, "You ever see that Mr. Jones video?" I go, "When that dude's dancing, I go, I want to like figure out how to get there." Shit, I want to be that free. <laughs> but you know, it's a weird thing. I used to. I'm gonna take this off for now. Okay. I used to be. For me, you know, life is often very awkward and uncomfortable, but. Not on stage, you know, like on stage, I always felt like, well, this is the one place on everything I do is fine. Right. And so when I started, you know, making videos it, at first, it was just like, this is apps. This is easy because all I got to do is do the stuff I'm going I'm to do, you know, and, and there's nothing wrong I can do. I can just be as free as I want. And that lasted about a year and a half, maybe two years. Something about like getting really famous out of nowhere and then. You know, all the kind of backlash that comes with it. I noticed a couple years later I was a lot more self-conscious. I'm still on stage. I never think about anything. When I'm playing, it, nothing bothers me. But in front of cameras, I got really self-conscious in front of cameras after sometime in the middle of our second record. I just noticed that I started to suck on, not suck on video, but definitely not like that Mr. Jones video. You, you became know? aware that so many people were watching and criticizing you, or like, what was it? I think it was that, you know, because at first I just, uh, well, didn't care. And I just thought, that there's nowhere in the world I'm more comfortable than here, so I'm fine. And then I think on our second album, when we got a lot of backlash, and you get a little too big, and everybody, you get you annoy the shit out of people being, yeah. being you know, especially because in a band, because you get a really successful song, they're going to play it on the radio every five minutes. After a while, it's like, God, who wouldn't get sick of it, you know? Yeah. And then you get some backlash after that. People say some terrible things. And then, <laughs> and then I started thinking about, like, what do I look like on film? Then I got really <laughs> self-conscious, you know? Does, what, does this pants, does this look my, does this song make my ass look big? You know, and the... I noticed that I got kind of crappy in, just in front of cameras, not the rest of the time. And, and not like cameras when I'm on stage at a concert. Like you play a big festival, there's lots of cameras. and doesn't bother me there. It's just kind of sometimes on TV and in, in filming, I got kind of self-conscious. And, and the, I had never been that way. The press stuff, like that kind of stuff got you I think so. I, I mean, I don't really know what caused it exactly. I, I would, the only reason I would say I think you're right about that is that, is that it happened then. You know, and that was the first time I'd experienced that because, you know, no one says anything bad about you when they don't know you exist, for one. And right. then on our first record, God, we couldn't buy a bad review, you know. And But by our second record, it was we weren't even getting – it was like, forget him. He's fucking this chick, so I don't have to – forget his music, you know. And then, like, he got fat, whatever it would be, right, you know. Right, it, right. It, you start – you know, when a nationwide – when a national publication calls you fat, you know, it's like <laughs> – Shit. Uh, I remember getting a review in like in England once and somebody called me Ponzi is a fishmonger's cat. 
which I, I suppose fishmongers cats eat a lot. Poncy, like is that like chubby? Poncy. I thought it. I thought it meant chubby. I assume. I, I, I really guess. Don't, I don't know. It just sounded bad. That's so just British. being compared to a fishmonger's <laughs> cat. Just, the fact that fishmonger is involved at all as a word when they're talking about right. your concert seems like a bad sign, you know? Yeah, there's a thing that happens, right? Like when people discover you and they find out about you and you haven't gotten big yet, like especially for bands, I think, where they 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 love the fact that they're the first to tell their friends, you got to yeah. listen to this band, got to listen to this album, this is awesome. But then when you get really big and other people like it, and too many people like it. Then you're like, oh man, they were good in the beginning. Well, like, I think I think you're. I mean, I think that music, unlike almost everything else, it becomes our personal cool. You know, I mean, we literally wear it on our shirts. Right. You know, and and it it defines who we are. We talk about this genre or that genre as being our gang almost. And when when you're discovering stuff, yeah, it's really cool. And then when you have to share it with that guy at the water cooler who likes the fucking worst music, you know, that guy who's been coming in for years and he's just listening to utter shit, yes. and now he loves your band too, and you're like, I don't want to share this with Captain Asshole over there, you know? And uh, I've never understood that, because why can't people with terrible taste also like great things? Like, great things are great no matter what. Like, everybody loves The Godfather, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like, wh whoever says that, that movie sucks? No, nobody. But people who like terrible movies still like The Godfather. You know? Well, I think it's less because they now like it as that you're now, as opposed to, you were in a club without them, right? and now you're in a club with them. That's and that problem. just sucks, because you didn't have to be in a club with them before. Right. Uh, it's human nature. I, I mean, I get it. I, I, I didn't like it when it landed on me, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I get it. Well, and it happened to you pre-social media. Yeah. You were, you guys were just getting reviewed by experts. You weren't get shit on by the general public yet. <laughs> no, I mean, but that was kind of, that was a good thing for one, but I was really into, so right, well, it's, for me, it had happened when I was kind of already into social media, because I remember moving down to LA after our first album, and, and that year, while I was writing the second record, discovering that AOL had these, uh, like, message boards, so this is 95, say, and I realized that AOL had these forums and message boards for all the bands, and it suddenly occurred to me, well, I could just go on there and talk to people because when I read it they were worried about were we ever going to make a second record were, were we going to shit did we exist anymore like what all the questions that you wonder about your band between records and it suddenly occurred to me well I could I have the answers to all those questions you know I could just go on there and it took me a little while to convince the people on there that I was me but uh <laughs> yeah, understandably of course know. but eventually I did and then it, we sort of started this kind of community there uh, you know, way before other social media. It, but it occurred to me because the rest of the time you, you can't get to your fans except through, or you couldn't then, except through the radio, the DJs, and the press. So, like, you don't really get to give anybody your own words. they got to be filtered through everybody else. Right. But that AOL thing was a chance to just, like, well, like what Twitter and everything is now. But it, it occurred to me back then it was really cool. And when people started, then I got into arguments with our own fans. I've always done that. It's just like, like what kind of arguments? Well, you know, like I, I don't think I'm who they think I am. Who do you think they think you are? Um, a classic rock guy driving around in a pickup truck, uh, <laughs> like think going that? to drive-in movie theaters, because that's this Americana dream vision of like we all sit around, you know, going to drive-ins and live in some dream of a Springsteen song that Springsteen isn't even any part of, you know. And I, I would go on there and I'd be like. Have you guys heard 
the first Justin Timberlake album. It's amazing. It's got like Timbaland and the Neptunes doing all the songs. And I would try and make this thing to tell them like, you should listen to this. It's brilliant music. And they just they couldn't grasp the Justin Timberlake thing because in their mind, in sync was the guy at the water cooler, right? You know, and so like I would get in these Captain huge Asshole. fights with them. Like you guys don't know shit about music. You're just like you're in this little niche, rigid. You know, you like us, and I I think that's very smart and intelligent. It shows a lot of wisdom, <laughs> but you're limited. And I get in all these fights with them. That's so, funny. Yeah. It's funny how like people are unwilling to try certain kinds of music because it has this i it has this like feeling to it. Like that's not that's if you like that, it, you can't be smart. You you can't be cool. Like this is yeah. This is shit music. You can't like this. Well, you know that it you know, it came out of like it did seem at the time like the thing ruining music was the boy bands. You know what I mean? Mm. It just seemed like right. there was one after another back then. It's kind of never stopped. Um, and, you know, I don't know how good some of them were. Maybe they were. I don't know. I, I mean, I look back a little more fondly on the Backstreet Boys now. Maybe at the time I, I couldn't abide any of that. But, I mean, I get it. I guess, you know. But I don't think I was who they thought I was. Or, or I mean, why should you be? You know what I mean? Like... We're all really individuals, and we're certainly not going to just fit into the the peg that people would like. To, why why would they Why would they know who the hell I am? Because I don't know them, you know. Right, and yeah. then there's always like whatever the publicists have put out, and whatever image they're trying to promote for you guys, like whatever. And then people take it in, they put you in a box. They got you in their head. You're you're that guy. What's the guy's name from Stained? Aaron Lewis. Oh, Aaron Lewis. Yeah. yeah. So now he's like. Don't tread on me, country western. I'm always carrying a gun. Like he used to be this, like you used to think of him as like this sort of alt rock guy, right? Yeah, yeah. And then he's made this like hardcore shift to this, like God guns and country type dude. Well, yeah. And who else? The other guy that uh, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Kate Quigley knows him. Um, uh, Darius Rucker. Darius, Darius Rucker. Rucker. Thank you. Yeah, yes. Darius from Hootie. Look, he's oh, a yeah. country. Been a country star for a long time now. Bigger probably than even when he was with Hootie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, which is weird because it's a different world that you don't connect to. You usually don't cross that border. That that, right. that can be a real restricted, closed society, yeah. you know. But he's had a lot of success over there. He's huge, right? Yeah, I think. I, I don't really I'm, know. I, don't, <laughs> I, don't, I think he's I gigantic. I don't, I don't know what goes on in that country scene. <laughs> I, I like a lot of new country. Yeah, you know? I mean, I we I come from like a country music background in that a lot of the guys in my band, you know, but it doesn't really mesh mu much with what is country music now. I don't really think. Well, there's a lot of different kinds of country now. There's like some really good artists that are doing like Sturgill Simpson type dudes that are doing. He's a really good writer. Yeah, yeah. they're doing country music, but they're they're, they're doing great music that has. Just this sort of country flavor to it, and his shit isn't even always country. Like he, his last album threw everybody on their head. They're like, "What the? This is like some crazy arena rock shit. Like, what is this? Like, I haven't heard that record. The new one's wild, man. Emmer, my guitar player loves Sturgill Simpson. He's awesome. Yeah, he's a great dude too. Like, you had him on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've become friends with him. He's a cool guy to hang with. I always wanted I to like meet you because you have. We have a lot of mutual friends. Like guys that I that I known for a long time that just love you, like Rock, Jeff, Jeff Ross, okay, uh, Saget, Bob for sure, and uh, love him. Uh, oh, you know Brian Callen too. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. love him too. For the first time I ever met Brian, we were went to his friend's house, 
we had just gotten there. It was, it was in France, and we were walking out. Everyone's like, here, have a glass of wine. We're going to go look at the sunset. It lives on this cliff by the Atlantic Ocean there. And we walking out across the lawn. I just met Brian like an hour before that. And there's about eight of us, and we're walking across this lawn. And Brian is just walking next to me, and he turns to me, and he goes, all right, now, uh, you're going to say to me, it's, it's really, Captain, it's really quiet out there. And I'm going to say maybe too quiet. And you're going to say, what do you think it is? And I'll take it from there. <laughs> I said, what? He goes, all right, I'll repeat it. Like, uh, you're going to say, Captain, it seems really quiet out there. I'll say, maybe too quiet. You say, what do you think it is? And I'll handle the rest of it. <laughs> like, uh, okay, goes, wait till we get to the cliff. I get out there, we're in this group of people, everyone's looking at the sunset. My friend is talking about how if you, right at the moment before the sunset, there's this green light. It's, it's, it's a deeply spiritual, beautiful moment. And, uh, and I go, you show, I mean, Brian nods at me and I go, it's pretty quiet out there, Captain. And he says, aye, maybe too quiet. I said, uh, what, what do you think it is? He looks around and he goes, Orca. <laughs> Apparently, it's like this Richard Harris bit. Remember that movie Orca? Yes. The kind of jaw, Jaws rip off. Yeah, that yeah, that. yeah, yeah. So like, Orca. Yeah, that sounds just, like Brian Callen. Yeah, absolutely. and then there was probably some gay stuff. Yeah, he probably he, talked about gay sex. He just—he's like, okay, we have to do that all the time now. That's our thing. And grabbing yeah. butts and. Horses. Yeah. Horses. Yes. Yeah, riding horses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe uh, guns. Uh, probably yeah. the occasional sword. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sword play, fencing, savate. Maybe because you're in France, he'll bring up a French martial art. Yes. Savate, savate yes. Yeah. yeah. He's he's quite a character. Yeah, uh, yes. Yeah, we know uh, quite a few people. Have you? Did you spend any time at the store, at the comedy store? Um, more like the, the seller with, oh, okay. uh, with Jeff a lot of times. Um because I, I I met Bob, oh, I don't know how long ago. Right when I first started out, because uh, my goddaughter's, her mother was really good friends with Lori Lachlan, so she's the my goddaughter's godmother. So when I was recording my first album, I met them, and so Bob, I knew through her because he was on Full House, and they would always come to shows. I just stayed friends with him for years, and then I met Jeff. Bob had me come to the like the premiere of the aristocrats or not the premiere it was like a, a screening at this at the writers guild for just for all the comedians that were in it it was like me and a couple friends and then bob and 50 comedians and jeff was there so we met and he had just made this movie called uh, patriot games did you ever see that no he took a trip to uh to iraq right a after the when they first opened it after the when that desert storm when the war not desert storm i guess it was the second iraq war um and he, he brought a little camera with him, and he filmed all this stuff, and the, the comedy stuff, but also, like, what it was like. I mean, it was before they closed anything, so they were they were playing, like, you know, holes dug in the dirt, really. He got to see all over the country at that point. And he made a really cool film about, you know, being in a comedy tour over there with all the troops right then. Um, so he showed it to me, and we just kind of became friends and started doing stuff together. We did a trip with the USO, me and him and... Uh, Sarah Tiana, Colin Kane. I know Sarah very well. Oh yeah, Stewie Stone and uh, like Robert Klein, and we did a oh, wow. and me. So like five comedians, and me playing the 
only songs I can play on piano, which are the mopiest shit we have. So it's like, uh, I was right in the middle of the show. We went around Germany together to the bases and uh, played shit. Why did people. you decide to go solo? Why did you decide to go without a band? It or? was just like, because it's just kind of comedy. They're doing it really bare bones. Mm -hmm. So Jeff's like, hey, you want to do this thing? I was like, ah, let's go. Wow. You know, so it was it was weird, though, because I, I mean... I can. I'm not a very good piano player. I can only really play a few things, and they're mopey, you know, as right. shit. So right. it'd be like, uh, Colin would play, then Sarah, and Stewie was hosting all of it, and uh, and then it'd be me, and then Jeff, and then Robert Klein, and uh, so it's like it's a pretty stark change in the middle there to like mope the mope fest. I had to start <laughs> telling jokes and just like just <laughs> ripping with Jeff and stuff. The mope it was, fest. It was so such a bizarre contrast. It was fun though. It was, it was like really fun to be. It was like being a camp with all the funny people. Your music is uh, oftentimes so emotional. There's so much, so much feeling and pat. Did you ever feel like, almost like, you? This is what you have to do, because this is like the your initial success was in this kind of music, or is your music always sort of had that kind of emotional flavor to it? I think that was always the thing. I mean. You kind of want to find something that you can bear to people, you know, like, I mean, B-A-R-E, like really right. open, you know, the more you can open something up and let people in. And that's kind of the whole thing, I think, when we're trying to make a record, is you just kind of want to make a world that people can climb into for a while and, like, feel something, you know, go from here to there with you. And Yeah. Um, so, I know I always just kind of thought that was... Um, you know, but sometimes you know, there's there's hope and joy in there too. But yeah, it's about feeling stuff mostly. Uh, I think that was always kind of what it seemed like it was about. Because I think I always had trouble uh, feeling things with other people. You know, just in normal life. You know? Right. But uh, and I always liked music. I, and when I would listen to it, I, I think that's one of the things I loved about it was that you could get lost in it and you could feel all this stuff. And they seemed to be able to communicate stuff to me when I was listening to a record. Um, you know, and I was, a, I just couldn't figure out what to do with music when I was a kid because, you know, I didn't, I just could sing. So I don't know what that means. High school musicals or something, but where's that going? When did you start? When did you start singing? I probably sang from birth, you know, like, really? or, you know, as a kid, I, I could always sing and I liked singing, but I don't know what to do with singing. And when I was a freshman in college, like my first term, uh, I wrote a song. Like it was like within the first month and a half I was at school, I wrote my, there was a, I was in chemistry class or something, and I started kind of thinking of the song in my head, and I wrote it down and was humming it to myself. And after class, I went back to my dorm because there was a lounge with a piano across the hall from my room. And I went there, like locked the door, and sat there all day trying to figure out humming stuff and trying to figure out what note that was and then see if I could find a chord that worked with that note. I kind of knew how to make a major and a minor chord. You know, that's all I knew. Um, and I wrote a song. And as soon as I'd written that song, uh, I was a songwriter. Wow. So that was your first real attempt at creating a song, just out of nowhere in chemistry class? Yeah. I mean, I think I'd written, like, lyrical stuff before, but I'd never actually tried to make it something I could play. And uh, I just figured this thing out. And, you know, that's the thing when you're a kid. You don't – like, you're pretty undefined. You don't know what's going to go on with your life. You don't know what you're going to be. You know, like, the, the whole adulthood things, because you've been pretty structured. You go to school. Or people tell you what to do when you're a kid, and you go do it. You know, you do the best you can. You go to school. You go play a sport for fun. You know, and, you know, I'm still in that in college. You know, the, the adulthood thing seems really, like, confusing. Like, what am, what am I going to do? How am I going to take care of myself? 
people get jobs, I guess, and then then people do people tell you what to do for the rest of your life after that. It, that doesn't seem very good. Um, and then I wrote literally. I mean, I wrote this song, and it was like a light going off in my head or coming on. I just from that moment on, I was like, oh, I'm a songwriter. I don't know how the fuck to do that or how to like, <laughs> I'm not sure how to make a life being a songwriter, but I am a songwriter. I'll have to figure that out. You know, I kind of knew what I was going to do before any of my friends. I didn't know how to do it, but like, it was just like, like something switch went on. As soon as I did it, I knew who I was kind of in a way that I had never known before. Um, what did you think you were going to do for a living before that moment? I don't know, man. You just were trying to figure it out? Yeah. My, my dad's a doctor. My mom is too now, but uh, what were you going to school for? I thought I'd be a writer or something. I liked English. I, I liked writing. Um, but I didn't really know. You know, I was uh, I've done for the first couple of years. I was a women's studies major because I ended up in this class and it was really interesting. I was kind of blown away by it. Um, but I don't know. You know, that taking care. I mean, that's stuff you do in school. You know, fields of study and things. Right. You know, you could go on school for a while, but. But you had never been in a band or anything until that moment? I had when I was a kid. Like, when I was, like, 13, I was in a band. We played at friends' bar mitzvahs and shit. Oh, yeah? We just did, like, <laughs> Beatles and, you know, we... Our parents told each of us we could get one songbook. So we just bought the Beatles, the Stones, and Led Zeppelin because they had the most shit in the book. You know, mm -hmm. they were the thicker books. But that's just, like, cover songs when you're 13 right, or 14. Right. Uh, no, my first band was still a few years away. But I... I wrote every day from that point on i just was obsessed with like because all of a sudden i had this way where i could all the stuff i'd been feeling and thinking and like you know i had all this stuff that i felt like inside me but you know you're not i i felt kind of plain when i was talking to people it right. didn't really i i felt like a pretty average dude and not really impressive in the way i i wanted to be you know mm -hmm. and uh not special in any way and i was i thought i was supposed to be you know but then i wrote a song and i could you know then it was like oh i can communicate all this stuff you know uh, pretty rudimentary back then but even then it was like well for me it was real powerful like to play a song people could feel things all of a sudden all this stuff inside me had a place to go and that was that was big you know? isn't that interesting it's like kind of everybody feels like somewhere inside of them is something special yeah. I think most people, I mean, there's a few people that have self-esteem issues that maybe don't think that, but a lot of people feel like there's moments where they're capable of doing something special. They just don't know what that thing is. Well, I think they also don't realize how much it takes to do things like that. Like it, it is dedication. You know, you're going to, you're going to play music. You want to go on stage and do comedy. It's not going to be that good at first. It's going to be a struggle. There's a lot of people who are better at it. And those people, you know, it's a lot of work, a lot of dedication, a lot of risk. Thinking about doing a job that's really hard to support yourself at. You know, you, especially you want to work in the arts. You know, like that's, it's a minuscule, it's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction that's so small that it's like a number that doesn't exist. People who can support themselves doing the arts, any kind of art, you know? Yeah. And then, you, you know, you're going to have to get, if you want to play a musician, you're going to get in a band, you're going to fight with your friends because... It's not fun. It's not a hobby anymore. You know, it's different. Uh, it's satisfying, but fun is like a very small term for what it means to do this sort of thing. You know, fun doesn't quite cut it. Well, I've always felt like a band was probably the hardest thing because not only do you have to figure your shit out, but you have to make sure that the other people in the band figure their shit out too. 
and you all have to be dedicated and professional and show up on time and be disciplined and be creative and also work together. So you have to be cooperative and you have to be understanding and you have to like figure out the ego dance and who's putting what and where and who's adding spice to the soup and uh I mean it any kind of cooperative artistic thing like that that's brutal it is really hard but there's no way it's the hard I mean I, I to me it's funny cuz to me it's always been comedy cuz like I I have friends who do it and you watch what it takes to be on stage I am not dependent on anybody in the audience to play a show like it just does not matter I, I'm glad they're there I really am it's great I hope they cheer really loud but I could play a great show either way. But like, in an empty room. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, or a room that doesn't get it. I'm still going to play a show and still going right. to be good. But man, like, I watch Jeff sometimes, especially l lately, because when him and Dave are doing that thing, they just, like, it doesn't seem like there's any preparation. They're just kind of They're just riffing. Yeah. 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 And, like, that's complete freestyle improvisation. But either way, even if it's just all written material, you're still writing. It's like surfing an audience, you know, yeah. like that's terrifying and a dependent and dependent in a way because, you know, it, if you have the success with the moment, it builds to the next moment, to the next moment in a way that we don't need. Yeah. But like as a comedian, man, it's like it is such a, a tightrope to walk with, the, you know, dealing with heck. Everything that goes into that shit is just like I went to an open mic night last night. Yeah, it was wild. I, I hadn't been to an open mic night in a while. And it was uh, it was interesting to watch because there was maybe six or seven audience members and maybe twenty comedians in the audience, so they're mostly just kind of practicing talking into a microphone and you know just trying to work it out. And you're just seeing you're seeing like single celled organisms try to divide and and become complicated life forms. And you can see like the sort of clunkiness to the idea because, you know, a lot of the folks that were on stage last night probably had only been on stage a couple of times or maybe it was their first time. And you could see it, you know, it's, yeah. and I was like, wow, this is wild. That's really cool, though. Yeah. I mean, like you could see like the, the genesis of things, you yeah. know, somebody like developing something. Someone doesn't have their material there yet, but they've got a thing, you know. But it seems so far like the road, like you're. It's like a person who lands on Plymouth Rock, and you're gonna walk to San Francisco. Like, yeah, it can be done. People have done it. It could be done, but oh, those first steps. You have yeah. so many steps. It's but such a far walk. It is far, but yeah. that's what I meant about like people not understanding yeah. like how much you want to do this. You can do it. There's yeah. nothing, no rule that says you can't. Right. But it takes. It's not just the talent. It takes. It's a long walk. Yeah. And you There's a reason why so few people do it. Yeah. There's a reason why so few people wind up actually being a professional. You have to be able to grind. Some people just can't they can't they can't just embrace this process. Cuz the process like there's a lot of days you don't want to do it. There's a lot of days you don't want to go on stage, but you must. You must yeah. and you got to continue to try to figure it out. There was a, a moment at the improv um uh, in LA <clears throat> where there was this lady on stage and I think she had just started or she was fairly recent and so she would do one of the things that comics do when they're first starting out they'll have a premise and it doesn't go anywhere and then they go into a completely unrelated premise and it doesn't go anywhere they have like their, their bits are very short they don't they don't expand on their ideas they don't really know how to yet and she's she's kind of bombing 
and uh, we're sitting there watching her, and I was checking to see when I was up, because I was up like two people after her, and me and the DJ are watching her bomb, and I just go, it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. <laughs> and and then two two people later it was me, and I went on stage, and he brought me up to, it's a long way <laughs> to the top. And that has been my opening song from then out. Every time I do stand-up, every time I go on stage, if there's playing music, they play ACDC, Long Way to the Top. Because it's like, it is, it's a fucking long and bloody grind. And that song just nails it. That song, you know? And you got to be brave, too. Like, on top of the length of it, don't forget that, especially, like, for what you guys do, uh, it is scary a lot, especially in the beginning, and, and at least... You always have a risk of the bomb. You know what I mean? It's always out there waiting for you. Like, and it's you know, even if it comes, you still got it. You can climb out of it. But the know? risk of the bomb is what makes killing so good. Yeah, it makes it feel so good. Is that you know you can bomb. Everyone can bomb. We can all bomb, and so you know that. And I, I've had moments like recently that are just not that good. You have a bit that you're trying out and it's kind of clunky, or you fuck something up and you're like, ugh. You have sets that are just flat. And you're like, shit. But that's just part of the process, and that makes it when it's sink. Like last night, I had a great show, and last night, like everything, like sunk in and just, just was seamless, and it flowed. It was free. It was fun, and those most moments only come out of the depths of despair. <laughs> those you have to you have to work your way through the shit, and I guess it's got to be like that with music too. I mean, you there must have been gigs that you guys did in the early days where you're just like, I don't even know how long I can do this. Oh, yeah, I remember one the first. I always remember this gig because I, I don't know that we've played this town since then. It was a uh, was it Lexington, Kentucky? I'm trying to remember what it was like a a southeastern college town. I'm spacing on what we were opening for Cracker, and it was this club. And it was upstairs was the, the club part of it. And the stage was one of those ones that's in the corner, like a triangle, like comes across the corner. And uh, there's just uh, the audience is all out. The rest of the club is lengthwise. And the stage is in the corner over here. Uh, and there's no like ba the backstage is, is up near the front door. And you got to like they just kept like a border around the club of people so you could walk and you have to walk around everybody to get up to the stage. And so we get up there to open the show. And the, the monitors are busted. Like, the tweeter's blown out on the monitors, so it's just like, the whole time, you know. And it's like, just, you can't hear anything. And I'm trying to sing. It's before we had in-ears, you know. And I, my voice is already wrecked from the first year of touring because I had never sung that much. You know, I'm really tired. And so we, we played, and I'm, I'm, we were terrible. Like, I mean, terrible. And because uh, and, it was just so bad. I mean, later on that night, Cracker got on stage, and... I, they were pretty good, but they hated it so much that like he stuck his guitar through that monitor after a while because he couldn't hear anything. It was just like, "What? What? You're a club man. Fix the goddamn monitor." Right, right. You know, like the horns are all busted. So, anyways, we get done this particularly terrible set. I mean, and we do a lot of improvisation on stage too. We're making whole shit up, which doesn't get any better, by the way. When you you can't hear anything and you're when right. you're sucking, we're still trying it, and it's still just like, oh, just you know, anything would have been better than what we did. So, man, when the set ends. And and it's just silence, man. There's no booing or anything, but nobody's clapping. Like nobody's clapping. There's just nothing. <laughs> There's just fucking nothing happening in there. It's just like, like like nothing had happened. Like it, like yeah. they were just everyone's just kind of looking at us. Like maybe we're gonna play another song. I don't know. They don't really want us to, but they're not trying to encourage us. And so we just like 
I remember some of the other guys had to grab their stuff. I kind of walked down off the stage and, you know, around down the whole side of the crowd, across the back to the little dressing room. Silence, just people looking at me. Just like, <laughs> fuck. <laughs> it was just so fucking humiliating. Just the worst. I, I've never forgotten it, except I, I guess I have forgotten where it was. But I think it was Lexington. I don't know, but it was just the worst fucking show. And just just the utter silence, though, the... the like, they were confused as to what we were doing. Like, <laughs> like, as if, like, it would have been confusing to them if we kept playing. It was weird that we stopped. Uh, whatever we were doing, they didn't really get it. I didn't I mean, I don't understandably, it was just fucking... One time, like, I came off a tour and I had, I had messed up my knee. I'd scraped up my knee early in the tour and it kept getting infected. And I ended up having, like, a staph infection inside my knee. It was really bad. So I got off stage the last gig and I had to go in the, for surgery the next day. And uh, they, you know, opened my knee up and cleaned it out. And then uh, they released me later that day. And it was the day that Jeff was releasing. Uh, he, he wrote a book. Like, I can't remember what it's called. Ro- you only roast the ones you love, maybe. Yeah. And, and he, he had, uh, he was having like a, uh, I don't know what you call it, a book release party, I guess, at the Friars Club. Because he was real excited. And he'd wanted me to come. And I was like, I'd just gotten out of the hospital. Um, that, like late that morning and I was but I felt okay you know um and it was all sewn up so I, I you know I was a little high from the drugs but I, I was okay so I I put on like a tux tails but I, I couldn't wear the pants because I had this huge bandage on my knee so I just put some shorts on and nice shoes too and I, I got a cane and I I went to the Friars Club to this thing I wanted to be there to support Jeff you know and so he comes He's up on the like the dais up there. It's like in one of the rooms there, not not a stage, but he's up on there talking, thanking some people. And he comes down. Uh, he they, he got me a chair. It's just a room full of comics, and he got me a chair so I could sit down near the front. Um, everyone else is standing, just because I you know had surgery. And he comes down. I, I want to really thank my friend Adam who came with me, and you know we went on this trip a little while ago, and he's just a he's a good friend, and he hands me the mic and. For some reason, instead of just saying, you know, congratulations, Jeff, or whatever, I took the mic out of his hand and I walked up on the stage to, like, the podium and put it in the mic thing. And I, because I don't know, some part of me thought I'm at the Friars Club and I should make a speech for Jeff's thing. <laughs> <laughs> but by the time I got up there and put the mic in, I realized, what am I doing here? Oh, like, no. I, I'm like, I don't know what the <laughs> fuck to do. I, I'm just, I, I just, oh. like, sort of looked at them and I said, so I peed on my girlfriend earlier today because <laughs> I it, it had happened, you know, like when they finished the surgery, they, you know, they gave me this epidural and they numb your whole lower half of your body. So I don't know what's going on. And uh, they, I'd come out of it and they were my you know girlfriend was like, how are you? And I'm like, I don't know. I feel weird. I feel pretty good. Am I am I bleeding down here? Am I wet? And 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 she reaches like under the skirt to check me out. And she's like. Uh, I, th- I just I think you're you're peeing. That's all. You're just you're peeing yourself right now. I'm like, oh, how do you know? And she goes, because you're, you're peeing on me right now. Just, <laughs> she pulls her hand, and I'm like, oh shit, I'm sorry. I can't. I don't know what's going on, and I couldn't feel anything. So like, <laughs> so, so when you're numb for an epidural, it just pee just comes out whenever it wants to. I guess I don't know. Like I I, I felt weird and like a weird warmth, and I asked her if there was something wrong in there, and she's like, yeah, you're 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 peeing yourself probably. <laughs> Like, how do you know? And she goes, because you're pissing on me right now. And I was like, so uh, so I'm standing there in the Friars Club, and I just said, so I peed on my girlfriend earlier today, and the place just breaks up. And I was just, I that's 
I guess that's one more thing she's got in common with my mom. And I, <laughs> I don't know. I went on for a couple minutes, told that story, and I was just like killing. I was like really good. <laughs> I was patient. I was like not rushing anything, I, probably because I was kind of stoned from the drugs. Yeah. You know? And I just like, I got about two minutes of it. I just drilled. It was hysterical. I came down. Some older guy comes up to me and goes like, you killed. It was you and Vagoda. You and Vagoda were amazing tonight. You're always welcome to the front. Where do you usually work? I'm like, I'm not a comedian. He's like, you're kidding. That's hilarious. It was like, but I mean, it was, it was the greatest thing because it's like you were saying, I was terrified. I got, I I stupidly got myself into the situation and then of all things did like, you know, it feels like I did 10 minutes, but it's probably like two minutes of stand up. I did like a minute and a half stand up in front of like the history of comedy, like, and crushed it. And as I'm coming down off the stage, I was like, hey, that was pretty good. And Jeff goes, I know. It's like crack, right? And I'm like, that's amazing. <laughs> he goes, I'll talk to you more about it later. You know, I was like, <laughs> and then he goes back up on stage. I mean, it was just like, I don't know what I was doing getting up there. It was the dumbest thing, but it was so like, Could have worked out. Yeah, because I've been there with friends of mine who are comics, and I've bantered with them, played piano like in that little keyboard, you know, in the cellar with Jeff and with Bob sometimes, just done that shit with them. And, uh, you know, it's always terrifying. But, like, that one moment I wasn't even with them. I just did it, and, ah, it was the greatest thing. I mean, to this day, I don't know if there's a performing moment that I feel prouder of than that one, even (laughs) though it was completely accidental, you know? It's just like, because it was so terrifying and unsupported i didn't have a band i didn't have anything i didn't have jeff or bob it was just maybe it's probably just a minute you know whatever short it was though it was it was like it was fire man you know what i mean like, <laughs> it was is it recorded oh i don't i don't think so because it wasn't like a real perform- it was like a little hall and he it was like one of the side rooms and jeff was in there everyone was there to celebrate him and he made a you know, talk a few people spoke i don't really remember where it was because i've been to the friars club a few times but I don't really know where that room was. I'll have to ask Jeff sometime. But no, there's no way it was recorded. I don't think because it wasn't like anyone was performing. Right, just, right, right. At least I don't think so. But. Did it make you think about doing it again, like actually preparing a set? Or are you like, you know what? I'm one and done. I'm one and oh, I'm going to retire undefeated. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I'll be honest with you. Every time Jeff wants me to go play with him and do that sort of stuff, first of all, because I can't play piano very well, so I end up just picking four chords and playing them in a circle. It's not like Mayer's up there with him who can actually play, you know? Right. But I, I like bantering with Jeff, and it's fun, if terrifying, you know. Um, but he's so good, he can kind of, like, hold your hand. Yeah, he, and he really And help you through it. And if you stumble, he's got something funny to cover it up. Yeah, and he's got that, like, I'm not sure there's a better sound in this world than that laugh of his, you know? Yeah. When he's just giggling at the stuff that's going, hey, hey, hey. I can't even do it. The laugh, you know, when he's he's giggling, is, he, he giggles for his friends and laughs for his friends when they're being funny, you know? Like, I've known Jeff since before he was Jeff Ross. Oh, Lipschultz. Yeah. yeah, I've known him back in the in the old days. Wow, you know he's a black belt in Taekwondo. I, only reason I know that is because uh, I saw it on the. Uh, I was when I was looking through your podcast at one point. I watched like I was look, went to watch the ones some of the ones with my friends on him. You know, people yeah. I knew. Um, yeah, and I, I saw that picture of him like when he's I don't know how old is he like I don't know he's pretty young. Yeah, he looks really young. Uh, he's got that big. He used to have really curly <laughs> hair too. You know, he had the great curly yeah. hair. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great picture. Yeah. Must, did he not do it after that for a while? I don't think he does anything. Yeah. I think he swims and, like, drinks. 
both pleasant, you know. Yeah. Like, swimming <laughs> nice can be things. unpleasant when you do it for too long. Well, but drinking a, is great, you know. Have you been to his house in Hollywood Hills? Oh uh, no, no. He's I haven't either. I've been to his place in the village. He but. sent me photos of it. It's he has a pool where when you go in the pool, if you're in his house, you could see the pool. Like oh, really? a, the the side of the pool's glass. And it butts so, up against the house. So someone's swimming in the pool. Like you can get up there and you could see it from outside. Wow. Note to self, don't piss in that pool. Yeah. Don't ill people can see it. Wow, that's yeah. wild. Yeah, it's pretty wild. <laughs> so he's just up there lounging, looking at the world, watching it burn. <laughs> from the Hollywood. Like Hills literally there. watching it burn yeah. sometimes. At least I mean, a couple Hollywood, times a year. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially now. No, he's like, that was kind of wild seeing that. You did Taekwondo too. You were the champion in Taekwondo, right? I, I mean, yeah, I, I won a bunch of tournaments. Yeah. That's what I was, that's all I did when I was 15, from 15 to like 21, 22. That's the martial art that I did when I was a kid. Like, uh, it was, I must have been pretty young. It was like Texas and Denver. So it was like seven and eight. It's a good martial art for kids. Teaches yeah. them discipline and stuff. It was, I remember it being fun, but <laughs> it, uh, it got me hit. Well, you know, you're like, I don't know when I'd start doing that. In like 2002, maybe, I started boxing, you know. I started boxing with this boxing trainer in L.A. just to get in shape. I was really out of shape. Uh, and then he would come on the road with us for a while, and we would like train with the whole band in the mornings usually. And then he and I, after sound check, we would do like 10 rounds, you know, about, you know wherever we were at the gig and just exercise in the afternoon. Right. And so we'd do it for a while, and uh, – but like early on when we were doing this, you know, he was doing some stuff where like I was just working defensive stuff and he threw like a low hook at me and I, I did this thing, you know, I blocked it with my arm and he's like, what was that? And I was like, I, I don't know. It's a, I, I just blocked it. And he goes, don't do that. You, you'll get, he goes, why? He's like, don't drop your hands when you're boxing. It's a bad habit. Like, okay. You know, and then I did a long way through a low hook and I. You know, strap my arm down to block it. And he goes, where is this block coming from? What is this kind of thing? He's like, he goes, did you do Taekwondo when you were a kid? I was like, uh, yeah, I did. Weird. Well, how'd you know that? He goes, I think it's a, I think that's a yeah. Taekwondo block, but that's, you know, like, I think it works in Taekwondo because of the nature of the, the rules, but like, you don't want to do that boxing. Don't drop your hands boxing. Cause I go, what's the big deal? He goes, well, cause you're going to get hit, you know, you're going to get hit in the head too. Don't drop your hands, especially not your right hand. You know, that's where hooks come from that side. And I was like, well, I mean, I don't know what the big – I blocked your punch. He goes, don't do not do that. Like, don't uh, – Don't say that. Don't say that. <laughs> and I was like, all right, all right. So we do a little more, and and uh, he threw a little hook again. And I went like this, and he just mm, – whack, hit me in the head. Not hard the first time. And I, he was like, taekwondo. And I was like, ah, oh, fuck you, man. So I was going to do it again. I, I did it again. I could not – break myself of the habit and every time I like he would just like whoop whoop hit me in the head whoop whoop hit me in the head and every time he would just go Taekwondo. well you know what yeah. it is is a lot of martial arts a lot of, especially in the old days before the UFC came around a lot of them were closed systems right so if you were doing Taekwondo you would only do it against people who were doing Taekwondo right so you didn't know that the things you were doing left you susceptible to certain techniques from other sports so, like, in MMA, you don't ever see anybody blocking like that because they've realized, like, first of all, if you block a kick like that, you break your arm. And second of all, you do leave yourself open to punches. So now people block. When they block kicks, they try to block with yeah. two arms. If someone's kicking high, you try to block with two arms 
and you you try to get as much as your of your body out of the way, but you don't do this like Taekwondo yeah. style. It doesn't really work. But in Taekwondo, it kind of worked because it was a closed system. Right. That's what he was trying to tell yeah. me. He's like, this yeah. is something that worked. Boxers never do. You that. have a habit there because that's the one thing you learn when you're younger. So mm-hmm. don't do it. It's like. Don't drop your hands. Like it also happens when people get hit in the legs a lot and they get in pain. Like yeah. when a low kick starts coming, they try to like stop it with their arm because just because it hurts so much. And then someone sets them up and pretends to throw a low kick. There's a thing called a question mark kick. You ever seen yeah. that? No, but I, it's I know like, what you're talking about. It looks like you're gonna kick someone low and then it turns around and, and it kicks them high. Yeah. You either it looks like it's gonna go up the front or it looks like it's gonna go low on the outside and then it comes around. There was a guy named uh, Globe Fetosa who used to fight in K1. He had like the most beautiful question mark kick. And they, they, they started calling it the Brazilian kick because he was so good at it. He, he, he had these crazy hips. He would, he, like if you watch him do it, it almost doesn't make sense. Like his foot would be coming straight at you and then out of nowhere it would do a full question mark and chop down. It's, let's see if you can find it. Globe Fetosa uh, KO. But so much like question mark kick was always the name of it. It was, that was a traditional, it was either called fake front kick, round kick, or it was, become, or it was called, uh, or, or it was called question mark kick. But then with Fetosa, a lot of people started calling it the Brazilian kick because he was so good at it. But it was weird how good he was. Like his hips, I can't do what he does. Like it's a, he's got a weird hip flexibility. Okay. You got something? I couldn't spell his name right. Hold on. Yeah, it's a weird one. It's, he's Brazilian, um, but he uh, <clears throat> he would literally when the when the kick impact impacted, it would be coming down like a hammer. Watch him. Watch this. That's not a good one. That's a hard one to tell. See if you can see it again though. Watch. Yeah, dude, they'll throw. Watch this. Oh see yeah, that? yeah. It Come whips on. around. That's crazy. It looks it's, like it's coming up under his yeah, arm and then it whips see, over. And it. look at that. He does that kilkushin like the fucking. Ki at the end, but look how it comes low, and then, uh, I mean, the way he would do it was like s- sensational hip flexibility. Isn't that wild? That rotation at the yeah, last look minute. Look at this, it's wild man. Nobody did it better than Globe. I mean, he's just the famous for it. A lot of guys are good at it. Maybe uh, Stylebender does it really good too. But it's wild watching, you know, mixed martial arts like that. Interesting, which disciplines tend to be effective. I mean, it seemed to me early on when it first came around, it was a lot of grapplers, uh, some guys that had beginning wrestling, and then, I mean, I haven't watched a ton of it, but jiu-jitsu seemed to be really effective for a while. Like, what's his name? Uh, Hoist Gracie. Silva, I was thinking of. Like, he Anderson was, Silva? Yeah. Well, Anderson Silva was a Muay Thai guy. He had Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He was very, he's a black belt in jiu-jitsu, but his whole thing was striking. He was a Muay Thai guy. His whole thing was kicking the shit out of you. Yeah. Which would hurt. Oh, yeah. From him? Yeah. Well, he's, to this day, still one of the greatest of all time. But jiu-jitsu, what we he were talking about. guys like, out. Like, he did those chokes. He definitely though. did. Yeah. He cho- choked out Chael Sonnen in the fifth round of, like, a fight where he was losing. He was getting the shit kicked out of him. In yeah. That fight. Well, he went into that fight, apparently, <laughs> legend has it, uh, with a broken rib. He had a, a fucked up rib going into that fight, so he couldn't really move properly, couldn't defend against takedowns, but still figured out a way to win. Boy, Chael Sonnen was just pounding him, and oh, yeah. he finally, it looked like he was done. He had him on the ground, he was on top of him, and all of a sudden his just legs just went... Caught him in a triangle, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, yeah, Chael was a beast, but Anderson figured it out. He just, I mean, that's that's 
a guy like him who could do everything. He can strike, he can submit you, and because he has all these skills, like even when he's losing, he still could pull it out of his ass out of nowhere. That's what he did. You know? Are any of the guys who like, I mean, I just love martial arts movies. Are any of the guys that were like, you know, the have any of them been really good fighters as well? I mean, I wouldn't know how to tell. In movies? Yeah. Chuck Norris. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah he Chuck Norris me. was a world kickboxing champion. He was super legit. Out of all the people that have ever been in martial arts movies that are like famous guys, Chuck is the most legit for sure, 100%. Like, there's never been a guy who had more like battle tested combat sports experience who became a movie star than Chuck Norris. Because in his day, like that kickboxing back then was not the same and karate tournaments and everything. It's not like the level that people have today. Like if you watch like a Nicky Holtzkin or some like elite kickboxing guy today, it's a different level. There, it's, it's more advanced. But it's the same like going and watching the UFC from 1993 and then watching the UFC in 2021. They're more, it's just everyone's more advanced. They're just better now. It's just the sport evolves yeah. and gets better. But in his day, Chuck Norris was a bad motherfucker, like legitimately badass world champion kickboxer. And um, I think he learned in Korea in the military. I think that's when he first started, if I'm not mistaken. But he was a Tang Soo Do guy, which is like another Korean martial art. But uh, yeah, he, out of all the guys that have ever been, supposedly this is him fighting. I can't tell if it is or not, but that's what it says. Grand champion match. Which one is he? I, I, I don't the know. one on his feet. The one winning. In the end. Yeah, that's okay. Chuck Norris with his back to us. This guy here. Yeah. Ooh, these guys are good. See, this is early days, 1966. I wasn't even fucking born yet, and these guys are doing karate. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so this is like a point karate championship. Interesting. It's music. Yeah. But yeah. Is it music playing? Is yeah, that what yeah, it is? There's no sound. I was hoping that. I think that's Chuck with his facing us, and the other guy's got his back. It's hard to tell though. Yeah. Yeah. They're so young. Yeah, it looks like Chuck. But anyway, he did this. He also did kickboxing. He yeah, Chuck Norris had he done a lot of stuff. Does Muay Thai use as many like those heavy elbow strikes that you see like Tony Ja doing? Oh yeah, Muay Thai it is, it is Tony Ja. That's yeah. that's Muay Thai. Muay Thai is all about the elbows. Like the they have the best elbow strikes in martial arts. Elbows and knees, leg kicks. Yeah, all that yeah. stuff is that's Muay Thai. That's crazy to watch him. It's pretty great. That that every yeah. time I see uh, Ong Bak again, he's I know it's wild shit with two elbows. <laughs> like yeah. It's very rare that a guy is a, like a legit martial artist and then makes his way and becomes a big-time action star. I guess Randy Couture has done pretty well. He's done quite a few action movies, and George St. Pierre was in Captain America. But as far as like being like an action star, like the rock-style star, it's definitely Chuck Norris. He was yeah. the, he was the, he's the Mac Daddy of it all. You know, he's a super nice guy, too. Really? Oh, yeah. He's like one guy that when I met him... Like, I was so excited he knew who I was. <laughs> I met him at one of his World Karate Championship tournaments. His uh, World Kickbox, well, I forget, World Combat League, that's what it was called. And uh, he's like, Joe. I was like, oh, shit, Chuck Norris knows my name. <laughs> and I, I hugged him. And then I, But I didn't get a picture with him. I was like, fuck. And then finally, uh, later, uh, many years later, there was this... Uh, 
there was this award ceremony that they were doing and they asked me to speak at it and I did it just so I could meet Chuck Norris again. I did. It was like in this I totally get that. conference room thing and I got a picture with Chuck. It's on my Instagram somewhere, but just had to make sure that I documented I actually met Chuck Norris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had this, uh, when they know you, like, man, that's yeah, uh, it's cool. I w- we were on a plane once. We were we flown to L.A. and then we were cha- we changed planes and we were going to Hawaii for like a corporate gig or something. And I was with my tour manager, and he was sitting across the aisle. And I'm on the window seat over here, and this guy I wasn't looking. I was looking out the window out of the corner of my eye. This really tall guy comes and puts some stuff on the seat and then goes up to the bathroom. And I turn back around. So he's walking away, and I see Tom, my tour manager. And he's like, "It's a Mick Fleetwood. I think that's Mick Fleetwood." Like, wow, really? And I was like, I got really nervous because I thought, oh, it's going to be really uncomfortable. I got a five hour flight ahead of me. Uh, I'm not going to know what to say. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what to do. This is really weird. You know, I get, I get kind of anxious about that shit. I'm not really very good at talking to my idols at all. Um, and the, he comes back from the bathroom, and, you know, as, as he's walking up, it's, it's fucking Mick Fleetwood, you know? Wow. And he, as he comes back, he picks his stuff up off the thing. He goes, Adam, hello. And it's like, Mick. He goes, <laughs> you know, I'm Adam. He goes, I know. Hello. And I said, how are you? And uh, he sat down, and then he told me stories for four hours. It was awesome. Wow. He told me history of Fleetwood Mac stories. Talked about, like, it was like a fucking class in rock and roll history. It was the coolest flight of my life. He was just so nice. And he the next day, he uh, we exchanged phone numbers. He came to our show at this corporate show. I remember because, uh, like... Whoever was at this company, Joe Torrey's uh, daughter worked at the company, too. Joe Torrey the comic? No, Joe Torrey, uh, the Yankee manager. Oh. And so he he came, too, like, because his daughter loved us, and he brought her because he was involved with the company or something. And But Mick Fleetwood and Joe Torrey came backstage after us, and then Mick wow. just went to the bar with us and hung out at the hotel and talked to the other guys, because I really... My guitar player, Emmer, is just a massive early Fleetwood Mac fan, Peter Green, uh, and... It's his favorite song, you know, and like, so he was going to flip out and he wasn't there with us. And I really wanted him to meet Mick, you know, and it was just like, he still texts me to this day, you know, just hope, happy birthday or Merry Christmas, just wanted to say hi, you know. Wow. It's been about 10 years now and it was just like, it was the great, I mean, just to have like, (laughs) he knew who I was and he spent the flight chatting and telling me stories about rock and roll and shit. It was fucking awesome. That's amazing. Because I'm not really good in those situations. I, I have fled from people that I love you know I, I just been panic oh it's, it's Springsteen oh, causes man. me I've known him forever he's the nicest guy on earth and like I used to take my godson to school when I was still making my first album so I hadn't even made it yet I had met Bruce because we played this rock and roll hall of fame thing and his son went to the same school they were kids you know young kids they ate something then four maybe younger and so i would see him every day at school and he would always come up and talk to me and say hi and just couldn't make sentences <laughs> couldn't think of anything to say it was so bad you know the the he's doing a podcast now with obama i heard i wonder how it is he's he, he, that show of his that broadway show was so cool and he like told such great stories i mean it was i don't imagine the podcast can possibly be good unfortunately I I just feel like they would be so restricted in the way that community. I I think if you here, let me phrase this better. If Bruce Springsteen could be himself and Obama could be himself 
and you could just put a camera on it and just let them shoot the shit, I think it'd be amazing. Because Obama can be really funny. Oh, he's brilliant. Yeah. He's I mean, a brilliant guy. Yeah. But I can't imagine that if they're doing something and they're recording it, that they're not acutely aware of how many people are paying attention and acutely aware of like getting the right message across and yeah. saying things right. Like part of podcasting is being irresponsible. <laughs> like you're just talking shit, you know, and you don't even exactly know what you're going to say. Like right now, I have no idea what the next word out of my mouth is. There's nothing prepared. There's nothing like it when you think you're ta having, you're thinking out loud and for hours, right? Yeah, I'm mean, so thought of that. Yeah, here. I'm oh, sorry, sure. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go no, ahead. No, it's okay. But if you're a president, I mean, yeah. you're a distinguished statesman, one of the greatest presidents we've ever had, and one of the most historically important presidents we've ever had. First African American president we've ever had, and all, one of the all-time greatest speakers ever. Right? So he has this legacy, and then you're hanging out with Bruce Springsteen, who's also this like incredibly well-spoken, brilliant songwriter, iconic American musician hero. And the two of them together, there's so much, the weight of the eyes upon them is so heavy, I would imagine it would be very difficult to just shoot the shit. But if you could get them, like a little buzzed, <laughs> just yes. a couple of shots of tequila, just, just let's just fucking talk, man. Like just to, just to hear them talk for real would be amazing. I just don't know if you could ever do that. I, I, when I saw the podcast, I'm like, well, there's definitely camera people there. There's definitely like sound people there. Like one of the best things about this place is it's just us and Jamie. There's no one in here. And so it feels like it's just us and Jamie. But I've done other people's podcasts before and I'm like, why are there so many people here? Like uh, Bill Simmons, who's great. He's got, this, but I did his HBO podcast. What was it? Was a show? Yeah, yeah. I'm like, dude, you have a hundred employees. Why is there a hundred people here? Well, the nice thing about this is you don't necessarily need that. You can you do don't. everything you want. I assume they partake of the wonders of editing. You know, like they feel comfortable. But I, but you're right. I don't with all the know extra people what there. it is. I don't know what it is. But with all those people, it makes it very hard to just be two dudes talking. Well, that's something. I mean, I definitely had to. I I, I thought that to myself coming in here. Well, you know, this is three hours of unedited shit, so, you know. Don't we'll fuck your life with up. <laughs> so don't fuck it up, sort of, but also, like, you know, live with it, you know, because it's you're going to have three yeah. hours. Like, you know, when we do our podcast, me and my and my friend James, you know, I, I definitely take stuff out of it at times. Like, you know, I, there, there are things I've been really careful. Called? What is it called? It's called Underwater Sunshine. We just like kind of geek out about music. I for, like the uh, name. Do you have a T-shirt? I don't have them here. I'll, I'll get you get one. Get me one. I'll we wear an underwater sunshine t-shirt. Like I like the name. Well, we do, it's the name of one of the records we made. We did a bunch of rec We did a, a record of literally the most obscure covers record ever made. Like, oh yeah, nothing on there that anybody knows. There are a couple songs you, people would know, but basically we just picked all songs by friends of ours that were really good songs, but the shit no one knew. And uh, and then we have a festival called Underwater Sunshine too, where we just do like it's independent artists. It's totally free for a couple days in New York usually. Oh, that's cool. Um, it's we're gonna expand it a little bit this year. Um, but uh, well, we were expanding it last year when this whole thing happened, landed on us. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, coming in here, it's definitely a thought. Like, okay, well, it's, it's three hours of unedited talking. Try not to like, I mean, like, I try and be really careful about, you know, I don't, I will talk about things I love. 
I love to talk about things I love. I just want to geek out on music I love and shit I love all day long. I don't want to talk about stuff I don't like because, A, it's not going to turn anybody on to anything. Right. And, you know, and everybody's got a sister. You know, I know my sister doesn't like reading shit about me that somebody says that's just horrible. You know, right. so I kind of try and avoid that stuff just because... Yeah, through trial know. and error, you learn to avoid negativity. It's just generally not worth it unless there's a real point to be made. Yeah. You, you have to, like, really express something because it's actually important. But for the most part... It's, it's, it's easy, too. It's yeah. really easy to shit on somebody yeah, and, like, I don't know. Really it, easy. And it's very profitable. Yeah, it it's, certainly is that. It's very, co- it's very popular. Yeah. People love when people shit on people. <laughs> <laughs> it is funny. It's, yes. it's really funny. That's part of the problem as well. It's funny. It's the amazing thing about what Jeff's done in the last like decade or so is making this thing uh, not personal to turn the roasting into something that's like back like what it used to be when we yeah. watched Dean Martin when we were kids. You know, like it's funny, it's insulting. It's not about like getting the world to think you're a piece of shit. Right. It's about I'm making up a joke about how you're a piece of shit right yes. now. And he, he's done it without anybody really. It, somehow he just makes it work without causing a huge uproar. There's, no, you know, even the bull, some, it's not even a bullshit uproar about like, he, I don't know why he's he's managed to pull it off in a, in a way that's good-hearted enough that, yeah, you know, I'm not he's sure a, how he's managed it because that's actually who he is. Yeah. Probably, so yeah. what he expresses on stage is how he is, and also it's kind of how comics talk to each other anyway. We always talk shit to each other, but it's with love. It's funny. Like if someone shits on your clothes or shits on your face or shits on your, your head or shits on whatever it is, it's like we're all laughing along with it. It's like it's an honor to get roasted by Jeff Ross or you know yeah. any really good roaster. It's just – and Jeff is – because of his – love of like old comedy culture like the friars club yeah. and that kind of stuff he ha- he always loved that like when we were in our 20s he'd be like i'm gonna go to the friars club i'm like what the fuck are you doing you're in your 20s like we're not old dead men like in my mind i'm like why are you going to the friars club like, well, he wanted to go is- hook up he wanted to hang out with don rickles he yes. wanted to pick his brain and like you know because he's got that rickles issue. i get you know? it now i get it now but back then i was brazen and uh, yeah, you know, I, I didn't yeah when I was in my 20s I was a different human being I didn't understand traditions and all that stuff I was like get the fuck out of here with these old dead men hanging out cracking <laughs> jokes with each other in wheelchairs I just I just thought of the Friars Club as being this thing but I didn't know what it was it was totally out of ignorance I'd never been there before and then I realized as I got older like, oh it's like a camaraderie thing like these comics would get together and they had a place where they could hang out and then uh, Greg Fitzsimmons had gone there, and he told me he'd go there and play pool and hang out with these guys. He's like, it was just a fun hang with a bunch of guys who were just cracking on each other all the time. I was like, oh, okay. I yeah, I mean, there's nothing like that for us, for music. You know, like, I, he took there me there. Is a place where you guys hang? Not really. I mean, there was at one point, you know, I, I bartended at the Viper Room for years. Oh, like, uh, did you there. really? Yeah. Well, when I, that's how I ended up moving to L.A. I was, uh, I was home. It was getting really miserable in Berkeley. I'd been home for about a week from the end of touring. Uh, everywhere I went, it was an issue. Not, you know, mostly positive, but still, it's like you feel like everybody's looking at you. There are kids camped out on my lawn. A couple days, a bunch of days in a row, at least one, like a hundred people come up to me a day. But one of them was like, "Hey, are you that guy from County Coast? Yeah, you're Adam Duritz. Yeah, you guys are so lucky. I'm like, Thank you. I mean, because you suck." And there's Whoa. so many good bands in the Bay Area. It's wild that a band as shitty as you would be so successful. To your face. Yeah. And I was just like, 
It happened like four or five days in a row. I mean, it was dwarfed by the amount of people that were coming up just loving the band. But still, it was like it started to feel like if there's going to be one of these every day, is one of them going to have a gun? You know, is, is like, is this Mark David Chapman? Is it like, I, it seems such such a weird obsession to walk up to a total stranger in the line for a bank, you know, and just say Shit something like you. that. Yeah, like, and it was so weird. Uh, but we like we got really famous really quickly, and. Uh, I was the only people I knew in LA really were people at the Viper. I, I'd met a few of them playing across the street at the Whiskey on the first tours, and uh, so I, I was went home that day. I'd been home for I think seven days, and it happened like six of those seven days. And uh, I got a phone call, and it was it was Sal and Johnny Sal Jenko who ran the Viper. He's Johnny Depp's partner, and they called me up, and they're like, "Hey, we want to invite you to this party tonight." And I was like, kind of half in, half out. I wasn't really listening, and. And finally, they're like, wait, what's going on, man? And I, I told them what was happening. And they're like, okay, hang, hang on, Jake, I'm going to put you on hold. I sat there on the phone and know what was going on. They came back and they said, okay, it's, it's Kate Moss's 21st birthday tonight, and we're throwing a party here. The club's closed. We're just throwing a party for friends. We wanted to invite you. We got you a room at the Bellage, and you have a reservation on the flight at 6 o'clock, Oakland to Burbank. Just get on it. Someone will pick you up at the airport. You've got a room at the Bellage. Get the fuck out of there. So I, like... Grabbed my stuff, went to the airport, went to this party at the Viperum with just, like, interesting people. And I was like, I, I didn't go home again. That was it. I moved to L.A. after that. It was, uh, <laughs> I did. I stayed at the Bellage for a few days. I moved to, like, a bungalow at the Sunset Marquee. And then eventually uh, I rented this house in the hills. One, the, one of the bartenders, Shannon McManus, at the Viper, her best friend was Christine Applegate. And she was my landlord. She rented That's me this hilarious. old, like, she had this fucking place. It was like a, a little cottage in Laurel Canyon, and it turned out it was built by the cowboy star Tom Mix in the 20s, and then it was David Niven's, like, in-town fuck pad, and he named it Rogues Retreat when there was a little sign up there after this TV show he was on called The Rogues in, like, the 60s. Uh, and then, I don't know, I, th- I think it was the, I don't know what it was after that, but she owned it, and I stayed there. I wrote most of our second record in that place before I bought a place, but yeah, man, the Viper Room, for a couple of years there, I, I bartended all the time because it was just less crowded on that side of the bar. <laughs> so I, um, I, my friends all worked there, so I was be there anyways, hanging out with them. And so after you a while, bartended while you were a rock star. Oh yeah, huge rock the, at the height of it. Wow! Like because uh, I, well, I was back there, and I'd be hanging out with Shannon, smoking a cigarette, drinking beers behind the bar. You know, in the in the downstairs bar, there, the little one. And I don't know. At one point, I'd help her out with stuff. And at one point, she's like, "I gotta go to the bathroom. There's nobody else. Will you just, you know, mind the bar?" And I said, like, "Yeah, sure." So I did it. And, I, you know, I had no qualms about berating people for tips. I'm, I'm a rock star and they're not my tips, so why right. not? So I made her so I made her like a few hundred dollars in the like five minutes she was gone. And uh, she's like, you got to do this all the time. So I, I just started going there. I mean, that's where I lived anyways. I was kind of there every day. The only people I knew. So I just started bartending every <laughs> night. And it was like my home. You know, that's it was like crazy. I felt it was like a cheers thing. I felt like okay there I it's felt- kind of a cool way to interact with people too because there is yeah. a barrier and it is less crowded over there and it's probably kind of fun yeah and you know you, you uh talk to them if you want to if you don't want to you got to get a beer for someone else right. so I, you know th- and there was just so many people it was like what i thought like uh the left bank would have been like in paris in the 20s i mean it was like alan ginsburg coming in and william burroughs uh, the Hughes brothers, all these different filmmakers, you know, musicians, Tom Petty. Uh, it was just really wild. Gibby Haynes from the Butthole Surfers. You know, we were all, all just hanging out there. Wow. In John, it was like Johnny's Clubhouse, and we all we had barbecues on Sunset on Sundays. 
you know, and we just sort of, for a few years, it was this really cool, like, club, kind of. Wow. Yeah. Like a clubhouse. It was very much like that. Was the negativity towards you, like, specific to the Bay Area? Well, I think... Because that that's so unusual to me that someone would come up to you in person and, and tell you you suck like that. Like, that's dangerous. It is, and I think it's and because... And it's, it's, like, unprovoked. Yeah, it's no, like it's they're just, just trying to hurt strangers. your feelings. So, like, wh where'd that narrative come from, though? Because, first of all, you guys didn't suck. Your music was amazing. I was a giant fan. I mean, still am. But, I mean, back then, I was a giant fan. So, like, it doesn't make any sense to me. Well, I think it's just you get on people's nerves. You know, you just do. You know, like, just, it's just overexposure. It's too much. And, uh, but I also think San Francisco, in a lot of ways, back then was a struggling artist town. And so that kind of success wasn't cool. You know, it wasn't right. wasn't as well regarded. When I moved to L.A., it was a working artist town. It was really nice for me there because, like, all anybody wanted to do, you know, for all the – there's a lot of things about L.A. I don't like. I mean a ton. But I do like the part of it that it's like it was a working artist town. and People just wanted to do their thing, and they were interested in what you were doing. They wanted to show you maybe what they were doing. But everyone was, you know – we were hoping each other had success, and it was there was nothing to be jealous of. Everyone was doing stuff. It just didn't feel like. I love the Bay Area a lot more than L.A. Honestly, and in in, in years since then, I've I've loved going back home. But at that moment, it just seemed like it annoyed the shit out of some people in the indie rock scene I came from. We were a college radio indie rock band, and in this club scene up there, and it just, you got too successful. Yeah, and pretty quick. And I think yeah. it, it probably was all over the radio. Uh, it didn't happen to any of our friends. Uh, there were a lot of other bands in the Bay Area then. You know, well, I mean, three of us did really well right at the same time. Primus a little bit before us, and then us, and then Green Day right after us, you know. Uh, but we were all actually all Berkeley kids, East Bay. So I don't know. But it it happened for a little while, and then it stopped happening. You know, it, well, it's not bad there anymore. But. Well, the thing about San Francisco, the Bay Area in particular, is it's not a showbiz culture. No. Right? It's a culture of more art and a lot of really intelligent people. It's it's like, well, I lived there when I was a kid from age 7 to 11. And I remember thinking, it was like a very good place to be at the time. It was a very, a very fortunate place to be at that age of my life. Because I was around a lot of eclectic people. A lot of interesting, weird people. Yeah. You know, we lived... In the center of it all, we were right down the street from Lombard Street. So oh, it was really? like, yeah, it was, and it was during the Vietnam War, you know. So it was like, it was all weirdos and hippies, and my stepfather was a hippie. So it was like, it all fit in, and it seemed normal. And then when I we moved from there to Florida afterwards, and the contrast was so stark <laughs> that I, it made me go like, wow, I was really lucky to live there. Like that was a cool spot. Like people were, it was just interesting and creative and there was a lot of music and there was a lot of art it was just a different place to be but it was not it's not a showbiz culture by any stretch no. of the imagination whereas like in los angeles like people celebrate overexposure they celebrate overexposure and over over publicized people and people that are on billboards and the cut whereas like in a place like san francisco that's not cool like that's all fucked up they'd be more into like going to an antique store or something or well, yeah, and that's the thing that, like, I, the thing that I came to not like about L.A. after a number of years was the, like, their worship of fame 
being famous just for being famous. Yes. And they're like sort of circular worship of fame. But I, what I loved about it was that, that 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 all really exists and it's annoying as fuck. But it exists around a bunch of people who are out there doing stuff too. Yes. You know, like, and I thought that was really, uh, it's funny that you came with the Bay Area to Florida. We went from Texas to the Bay Area. Uh. Um, so it was sort of the, although I loved, um, my dad was in the army during Vietnam in uh, El Paso. And I, I loved it. Like to me, that was, we lived in Houston after that. I didn't like Houston as much, but the, but El Paso was, man, it was just like, cause I think it's a, it's a lot of, it was a lot of vacant lots and desert and bugs and snakes and shit. And it's also the first place, you know, when you're a kid, you like, first as a kid, you just do stuff with your parents, you know what I mean? And uh-huh. the family. And then at some point you go off and do something by yourself with another kid you know yeah. I, I you know at a certain point you get you get a little off on your own and that to me like i was six when i got there that's sort of the first experiences i have with going fucking around with shit on my own just like mm. vacant lots and snakes and spiders and like <laughs> riding yeah. my bike and yeah. uh i just really remember that about el paso and, and really loving that um and I actually i don't know why even the army culture which was kind of weird seemed cool uh, and I just liked it. I liked that town. And the, it's like, that's a weird town. It's like right on the border. It's a, it's kind of very much its own place. It's, it's Texas. I haven't you know? been to El Paso yet. I, I kind of love it there. I, even now we've only played, it was the last place I had that I'd lived that I hadn't played. Cause I grew up all over, you know, Baltimore, Boston, El Paso, Denver, Houston, and then Oakland. And then I turned 10. You know, like, so all that happened really early on. And I, but the last place I got to play was El Paso. I'd hit everything else. Um, and we, it was just a few years ago. And we were at this club. It was a big open air place. It had like a roof over it, but no ends. And it was right enough on the, uh, right across the river from Juarez, somewhere right on the Rio Grande. Enough so that like our phones kept switching over thinking they were in Mexico. Oh, wow. Um, so it was, uh, I mean, it was just like, the food was great. The people were great. I found the house where I lived, the two houses I lived when I was a kid. I went with in an Uber with my tour manager and found both of them. I don't know how, you know, it's like 1970. This is about five to ten years ago, and I managed to like, I remembered the street names and where they were on the streets from when I was six, seven, eight years old. You know, and found both houses, which was fucking freaky. I couldn't believe I found them. That like, must have been a trip for the Uber driver. Did he know yeah, who you were? I don't know. I'm not sure, um, but. <laughs> It was weird for me and Tom. Like, yeah. wow, can you believe, can you imagine just finding some house you lived in when you were six, when you're fifty? You know, yeah. like, it's really wild. Yeah, that is wild. I went back to the house that I went to high school with um, recently. Where like, was that? Uh, Newton, Newton, Massachusetts. Oh yeah, I know. yeah. Uh, I I was uh, wandering around that area, and you know, it just seemed familiar, but yet different. You know, because like your memory is kind of shitty. Like, you, you, know, you know, if you had to draw a picture of what the street looked like from your memory, you'd be like, uh, okay, I think there was, like, a tree here. Like, here's the arch of the bridge. Uh, and um, randomly, like, a year or two later, I'm doing a gig at the Wilbur Theater in Boston, and I'm eating with one of my high school buddies at a restaurant, and this lady comes up to me, and she goes, I live in the house where you grew up. And I'm like, What? And I, I took a picture with her. Like, it's That's just, cool. but it was like, we're, I'm here smiling with some lady who lives in my old house and she lived, yeah, and I'd just been there just like a couple years before with my family wandering around. But I remember thinking, like, it's so odd. It's so odd when you just try to 
piece together that weird blurry slideshow of a memory and then you see the actual place vividly and everything looks so much smaller than you remember and it's just it's strange it's yeah because you're bigger that's the weird thing. That, I mean, because we do, like, yeah. especially those kid memories of that was the thing. Because I, like, that's how I found the first of that. One of them I'm sure I found, the other one I'm not sure. Because it was in the middle of a street, so I wasn't sure. But one of them I knew was on a corner. And it had a big stone wall on one side of the street uh, and then the driveway on the other street. And I remember thinking that I could find it because that stone wall it was, I used to climb it when I was a kid. And, you know, when I saw that now, you know, it's like this high. Right. So, I, But it was, to me, it was, in my memory, it's eight or ten feet high because I used to climb it and climb right. down it. Uh, and there was like a, I don't, I don't, I climbed down, I don't know, it, I, I remember it being big enough that I had to climb down onto a mailbox and then jump down to the street. But it's not a lot bigger than a mailbox, so I'm not sure why that would have worked. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, I, I was six, you know, yeah. and I was a small kid. So, it, it's just, it was weird finding that because the, the Everything changes, you know. The the thing we were talking about when we were talking about going to L.A. and the the showbiz culture and the culture of fame and all that stuff is there. The real I, I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine about L.A. The real thing that gets tainted is not necessarily the people that just happen to be famous, the artists that are doing things. It's that there's a whole swarm of people that are trying to figure out a way how to get into that walled garden. And they're bartending, and they're waitressing, and they're delivering Uber Eats, and they're doing all these different things. So there's like uh, there's an anxiety of of just there's a, there's like a feeling of all these people that desperately want in, and they're all hovering around this area, and it changes the whole vibe of the town. When you go to a place that doesn't have that, and it's one of the things that I love about Austin, it does not have that. The feeling is different. Yeah. Like the feeling when you're around people, they're different. There's and the people there's people in LA that don't even admit that they wanted to be famous. They just gave up on the dream. They came out there for a very specific reason. They wanted to be an actor or whatever it is, and then it didn't work out and they became an architect or whatever, whatever it is. But they wanted to be famous. And and then they want to meet people who are famous and then become friends with those people so they can get and hang out with famous people. So at least they kind of get the rub. And it's fucking weird, man. It's yeah. A, it's a weird culture. It's like there's a shallowness to it, but yet some of the most interesting, creative, and deep people live amongst that shallowness. So you have all these like really intense artists that are surrounded by all these very strange people that are trying to figure out how they can get on the cover of Rolling Stone. But it's interesting because what you're talking about, it was one of the things that turned me off when I finally left because you're right. Everybody, even people who do impressive things and are successful only want to talk to you in conversation about the the movie producer they had a meeting with last week. You can be a very successful lawyer or a... in finance, you can be doing something very impressive in another field, and you still just, they aren't going to yeah. talk to you about being a doctor. They just want to talk to you about the meeting they had for a pitch idea. But I do think there's a flip side to that, too, that I did find kind of magical about being there, which is that so much of culture is about, uh, I was born here, I grew up here, around all these same people, and uh, we're all going to do this thing here, too. 
And there's a certain amount to which L.A. is about like it's a bunch of people who all decided they didn't want to do what everyone else in their high school did, whether it's to be, you know, a poet or a sculptor or a painter or a or a musician or an actor or, or a model. But it's still like I can't I don't want to stay here and just do this thing. I'm going to go over there. Yeah. And I'm going to go like like it. And there's a certain pioneer aesthetic about doing that. The problem is if you get there. And then it just becomes about famous and famous and as opposed to I, I, I dig the part of it that is like I got a dream and I'm going to go I'm willing to go all the way over there to get it and to do it. I, yeah. I love that. I felt like I had that in common with all those people. But then there's a side of it you're talking about where it a you lose what you came there for originally and it just becomes about chasing fame and success as opposed to doing anything for it. Um, and that got really annoying right after the millennium when the a lot of the reality TV stuff started to become bigger yeah. and bigger. And suddenly it's just like fame for fame, fame sake. for fame's sake is yeah. nothing about doing right. anything. And that was when I started to get, I lost my taste for LA. I, I really charred it to about the millennium and, and realizing it was like a year after that. I, we had these birthday parties every year and I used to love them and having everybody come up. And for years we had these big parties on Friday night where just everybody would come to my house on Fridays, you know, just like a huge party. Um, but I remember thinking, I, I don't want to have anybody over anymore i'm just like <laughs> i don't want to be here anymore and then like I, I had been spending a lot of time in in new york visiting friends and i had a lot of friends here from from years before and uh I, do you know who mary louise parker is no i know she, she is yeah, yeah so her and i met when we were kids like she had just done her, gotten out of college done her first movie i was in my first band uh she was out doing a play in berkeley at berkeley rep and we became friends i had a huge crush on her um but we became friends, this is like 1980, 89, 87, 88, something like that. And so we've been friends ever since then. So I would go in New York and I would visit her and her boyfriend and we'd go see plays all the time. And I thought I was really liking, liking life in New York. And I went, me and Billy Crudup, who was then her boyfriend, um, we went to see this play called Private Lives. It's a Noel Coward play. And it starred Alan Rickman and Lindsay Duncan. And after the play... Billy took me backstage, and we ended up going out that night with Alan, having some drinks and hanging out for the rest of the evening with Alan Rickman and Lindsey Duncan, you know, and it was just so great, like, the whole experience, and I felt, it felt, I don't know why, a lot more grown up, kind of, I don't know, I just felt like I'd been having conversations with, like, people from the real world, and now I was having conversation with Alan Rickman. And, and Lindsey Duncan, and I really liked it. And I thought, I think I got to get out of LA. Mm. I think I, I think I would like to like have these conversations more. And like, yeah, I like to go. See, I like. I realized how much I liked going to the theater, just because it was a lot like it was closer to what I do. You know, yeah. like going on stage and doing it live every night. You know, and I, I just like, I wanted to get the hell out of LA at that. And I had really appreciated it up until about the millennium. Like I had appreciated all the people that were creative. Um, and how much variety of it there was. I, I really liked all that, but it just, something happened after the millennium where I just got really burnt out on it. it I just, think you met, you nailed it with the, the comment about the reality shows because that clearly changed the culture of the city because now people realized you didn't really have to be talented. You just had to demand attention. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that are doing that now, whether it's TikTok or you know a lot of these uh, 
YouTube stars and things along those lines. They 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 don't really necessarily have a talent. They just either stir up a lot of shit, cause arguments with people, do pranks, whatever they can do to get attention. So it's not the same vibe, right? It's not about someone who's just trying to create great music or someone who's trying to make good movies or whatever it is you're trying to do. It's now become a culture of attention and fame. And that's that's LA now. I mean, LA is like a lot of these great restaurants and bars, they're TikTok places now. You know that? No. Yeah. What do you mean? Like people go there because TikTok stars go there. So like, what is that place on Sunset? Saddle Ranch. Saddle Ranch. I remember that place. Is I'm... a TikTok place now. Like TikTok stars go there, and everybody goes there to see TikTok stars. Is it even open now? Yeah, they're allowed so. to be I, open, I, fully open. I haven't been there. Fuck, I don't know. I you go so. there every goddamn chance. He's a TikTok fiend. Look at him. No, <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. But that's a thing. Like uh, Boa is a big steakhouse on Sunset. Yeah, and it's Bob infested with TikTok people. I've only been there once with, with, Why with you Bob, and the, the steak right? was great. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, am I right about this? Yeah, but I mean, it's always been infested. Probably, maybe like uh, different sections have been infested with young people. They're just like young listen. When people, I say right? infested, maybe that's the wrong word. If it could be infested by rock stars, now it's infested by TikTok people. It's like it becomes the culture, right? Well, you, there, you aren't wrong that like. The way in early 2000s, kids would flock to the front of MTV to maybe get a glimpse at some music video star. They're right. F- they're standing out in front of Saddle Ranch, not going there. They're just, like, taking their phones to take pictures with them. That's the weirdest That's thing it. to me, because I remember that so, at TRL. Yeah. You know, the, all that crowd in front right. of TRL on right. Broadway. But, like, that's a weird thing. You know, I... You were talking about early on about being awkward in front of things. I, I've never felt as awkward. I already felt too old the first time we were on TRL. I felt How old like, were you? I mean, I had to be 30-something, so yeah, I was too old. But like, <laughs> I, I became a rock star at, at 29 or 30. I mean, I left, put my first record out at 30. How old are you at 29. Now? 56. Um, yeah, so I'm, you know, I'm just inches away from death. but the first the very first time we were on trl and and, you know everyone was really nice but i felt like felt weird i felt weird and old and out of place and like over the hill already god you know like and i don't think i don't think it existed for our first couple albums but it was sometime around the third then i was like well we are past our sell-by date (laughs) which is like it's 1999 so it's been 22 years and we're still here so that's 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 pretty good you know no that's very good when you first made it what was it like to go from just being a guy in a band to all of a sudden, holy shit, it's the guy from Counting Crows. Holy well, shit, it's that dude. That was fucking weird for me because I was really shy, you know, and I, I had, you know, I have dissociative disorder, which is not dissociative identity disorder. That's what like, does that mean? That's what split personality. Disorder? Well, dissociative disorder is like, it's that you don't quite... It's hard to describe it. You don't quite connect with the world, and you feel a little bit like you're at the back of your head watching things as they happen. Isn't watching everybody. Yourself. Yeah, maybe not to the extent. Don't tell me my mental illness is something everybody has. I'm. I don't know. No, I mean, I think it is to a certain extent, but it definitely kept me at a distance from things, and I how always felt a little di- awkward. How did you get diagnosed? Like, how do you, how does that get? Well, do you have finally, to describe the issues that you're having, and then the psychologist sort yeah. of explains it. I don't think I really got it diagnosed till I was almost 40 because I mean, they had been diagnosed as different things. They thought I was kind of bipolar at times. I was medicated for a lot of different shit. Really? Um, 
Yeah, was which this is not pleasant. During the stardom period, you were medicated? Oh, yeah. Did oh, you yeah. get medicated after stardom? No, before. Before. I just didn't want to tell anybody about it because you don't want to be a public spectacle while you're going downhill. Bruh. You know what I mean? Like that, no matter how much sympathy people pretend to, to offer, we love to watch trains collide. Did you, know? you feel like fame exacerbated your issues? Well, yeah, because uh, I was very anxious and very shy and all of a sudden, and very awkward in company with people. And then all of a sudden, everyone in the world is coming up to me. And it oh. felt like felt like claustrophobic, like the world is just pressing on you all the time. You know, I, I remember when we got offered the cover of Rolling Stone, and I, I told my manager I wanted to think about it, you know, for a day. Because, you know, and of course, you're never going to say no to the cover of Rolling Stone. It, it is... If you want to have a career and you get off the cover of Rolling Stone, you should fucking do it because that's that's a career maker right there, you know. But I also, I mean, it's not like this nowadays because there are no newsstands really or very few. But remember, like having your picture on the cover of a magazine like that meant that you were like omnipresent. You were everywhere, on every street corner. Everyone, your face was everywhere. So like any sort of anonymity is is gone. I mean, and it scared me. It really, it did. It scared the shit out of me. Um, but, you know, you got to do that stuff. So, I mean, I struggled with it at first. It was really different. People chased you down the street. Um, I remember going to a movie in Birmingham by myself in the middle of the afternoon. Just went to see some movie. It was a block or two from our hotel. Uh, just a matinee, you know, on a day off. And I'm in there. There's no one in the theater. It's like one of those multiplexes. So there's no one in there, the one I was in. And then, like, midway through the movie, this guy comes down, sits next to me, like, in the middle of the theater. He's like, hey. I said, hey. He's like, are, are you in County Crows? I said, yeah. And he goes, oh, I love your band. Do you, do you mind if I sit here? And I said, you know, I'm kind of just trying to have some time to myself. He goes, okay. Gets up, walks out, walks out of the theater. Doesn't sit down in the theater, just walks out. And I, I'm watching the rest of the movie. It gets right, right at the end of the movie. Guy comes in again, walks down the aisle, sits next to me. And I was like, God damn it. And I turn, but it's a different guy. And he's wearing the uniform from the place. And he's like, hey, I'm sorry to bother you, but uh, the kid came in here earlier. I said, yeah. He said, well, he's been out in the lobby for the last hour on the payphone calling everyone he knows, I guess, because he's been on the phone the whole time. There's like 100 people out front now. I was just like, fuck. He goes, There's a, if you want to go out that exit, that takes you out the side of the building. You can sneak out. I was like, thank you. I went down ran and they, I was around the side of the building so I was a good block away before they spotted me and then they all came charging after me I made it to the hotel it's like but, some Beatles shit son. I know it was fucking weird <laughs> like it was it was like Beatlemania you know and it just you don't expect that and it was a lot to deal with for for me I just kind of freaked me out uh, you know but you get I've, I've said the same quote a million times but like if you woke up on Mars it would take you a minute to get used to the gravity but you yeah. do you know you, you adjust Right. You know, and I, and I adjusted. But at first, I was like, I was a mess, you know? Yeah. I, just, I didn't know what to do about it. So, were you, did they have you on medication before all of this happened? Oh, yeah, yeah. What kind of shit were you on? Fuck, I don't remember now. I mean, it was such a long time ago. I was talking to a friend this morning because her son is uh, taking uh, Lamictal. And what is Lamictal? It's like a drug for anxiety or depression i don't remember now but i used to have to take it and the, it didn't work for me there's a different formulation for the chewable one that they gave to kids than the swallowable one that they gave to adults and the chewable one only came in like two milligrams and 
I had an ever-increasing dosage, you know, like 10, 20, 40, 100 milligrams. So, uh, did it like stop working? Is that why they kept increasing your dosage? Well, they just generally do. To get you on a drug, they, they oh, start they you small and then they, ramp they you give up. you more. Yeah. So, but because the only formulation that worked for me, weirdly enough, was the chewable one, which comes in like two milligram packets uh, of pills, um, I had to take the chewable kind because there's sometimes the formulations are different you know in the different kinds of ways uh-huh. they package up drugs and so something in the other version didn't work for me so i had to keep taking the chewable ones I, at one point i was taking like 25 of them you get 50 milligrams and it's like 25 these little can you imagine taking like 50 or 25 different flintstones vitamins every morning and you're just Jesus like this, this, Christ. You're, all the liquid in your mouth just gets sucked out and it becomes this paste you're trying to chew these fucking pills like that that's sort of the slightly sweet orange flavor of chewable pills you know oh. like i just i she reminded me of this morning and i just thought oh my god i forgot all about that like every morning taking like 25 of these pills and chewing them up and the just the fucking paste in my mouth for the <laughs> just this horrible it, on top of everything else that's going on you have this experience every morning this trauma inducing paste in your mouth experience you know i called it happy paste you know just but it was just so fucking gross on top of everything else. And you you must have had to have cases of that stuff if you're eating so much every morning. Yeah, it was weird. So the, how'd you bring it in, like a suitcase everywhere? Because if you're taking 25 pills every morning, is that what you're taking? Yeah, they're real little, so you, you get a bunch of them. But yeah, it took like four pill bottles each dosage, you know, to get you through. I mean, eventually they took me off, and it wasn't the right medication, and it was impossible trying to fucking chew up all this shit. But the chewer, why would the chewable ones work and the other ones didn't work? I don't know. It's, you know, sometimes the way, you know, there can be slight differences between generic versions and regular versions of drugs where, like, just the formulation's a little different. I don't know. But the the chewable form of it worked and the other one didn't. And wow. It, I, that was what a long time ago. What did it do for ago. you? What did the chewable stuff do for you? Shit, I don't remember what it was for. I guess it's for anxiety or depression. And you know what? Like, when something alleviates anxiety, what is the feeling... The what what how does it alleviate it? What does it do for you? Well, sometimes for me, with especially when it first came on when I was like twenty, uh, the dissociation was like uh, being on acid. You know, when you get high, you're on acid, and everything looks a little different, just a little weird feeling. That's what it was like. I spent like between twenty and twenty two on a like year and a half, two year acid trip at one point when I was young, which was really shattering way before my career. but for me, like, I didn't talk about this in my career until, like, 2007 when we were making Saturday nights and Sunday mornings. Because even though I was kind of a mess, Saturday nights was, like, the bottom of the bottom for me. And I really felt like I was falling apart. But the Sunday mornings was kind of about getting my life together after that. And I wasn't fixed, but I felt like I was not sliding down the drain anymore. And that felt like a time where it was safe to talk about mental illness. You know, kind of, mm-hmm. like, I don't, it's not my mission in life. I don't, I don't right. I'm not, not a role model for anybody but you know i just had avoided talking about it because i didn't want to be a public spectacle um while a lot of shit was going on in my life uh and that's what i was writing about i just didn't say it you know but i don't know it's like mental illness is a weird thing it's not like you know diseases most of the things that happen in your life you're going to get cured of it you know it's it's a problem it has a cure and then you it sucks and then you go back to normal you know right or you know, I guess, or you die. But some most of the time, we we expect to go back to normal. But it's closer to a handicap. Mental illness doesn't go away. It's just like you learn. Well, you get the right medication. It feels, but then you get a handle on how to live with being a little different. 
you get it's just something you carry around with you and you've got to learn how to carry that weight just because that's your life and it's different you know it's a good crucible for things in some ways i mean you do get some determination which is as it turns out a pretty necessary part of this kind of job um you know i I went through two years of feeling like i was on acid other things aren't as scary to me anymore you know like (laughs) quite honestly you know stage fright's just not an issue right you know i mean so you know uh, it's just like that but it doesn't seem like stage fright was the issue anyway no it wasn't but i mean it's not the general public stuff was the issue more more fame the pressure the criticism the craziness but maybe that's why stage fright wasn't an issue by the time it came around because i had been through other stuff like i mean in my first band as an adult you know so i was like 20 Five, twenty-six, maybe. For the first three gigs, I woke up each morning. I remember this. Like, our first one was at a street fair in Berkeley, the Solano Stroll. Second one was at a club called the Omni, and the third one was at a club called the Hill. Our first three gigs as a band. I woke up each day of those gigs uh, with complete and utter laryngitis. I didn't feel anxious. I didn't feel like anything was wrong, but I couldn't make a sound. Like each day, I was like. <laughs> Just like some kind of fucking hysterical laryngitis. Like I just lost my voice completely. For the out of first, nowhere. Out of nowhere. And I didn't feel nervous. I was excited about playing gigs. But in some part, you're like flipping out. I played all three of those gigs. I, uh, someone suggested that ginger is really good when you lose your voice. Because that just burns the shit out of your vocal cords and clears anything off them. So I, I like got those big ginger roots, you know. And I would take it on stage with a knife. And I would shave the fucking skin off the ginger root. Cut off a little piece like a stick of gum sized piece. Put it in my mouth and chew swallow the ginger juice like because that comes out of it which burns your vocal cords clean of anything and really? will allow you to it talk works? and sing it works for about a minute or two and then you got to swallow some more or get it and you don't want to swallow that that root so you got to throw that and did you tell the audience piece. what was going on uh, yeah because it was too obvious i'm standing on stage with a fucking huge root on a stool next to me and a, with knife, a knife a big knife a big sharp <laughs> knife or like paring knife of some kind and i'm shaving and like chewing pieces of gum like it, it went away after the third gig but the first three complete laryngitis do you think it was psychosomatic absolutely wow isn't that crazy that your brain can trick your vocal cords into seizing up because your brain is like somewhere there's a uh, somewhere there's an understanding that if this motherfucker can't sing we don't have to go through this shit oh this is what we're gonna do we're just gonna send some crazy vibes down to those vocal cords and paralyze the fuck out of them like Little do they know, it, but it's not that he, we can't. We're not going to have to do this. It's that we're now going to send him on stage with a knife and some ginger root. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> he's going to be singing all the songs. And I'm already like an idiot. I'm so nervous about not playing piano and singing. I'm standing up in front of everybody because I came to rehearsal one day. I was the piano player and the singer in my band, you know. And I came to rehearsal one day, and there's this other guy there, and he's playing piano, and he's really, really good. And they're like, hey, this is Dan. He's our Dan Eisenberg. I'm like, oh, nice to meet you. And like, he, he's our piano player. I'm like, I'm our piano player. And they're like, mm, you're our singer. <laughs> that was it. I was like booted out of And, you know, granted, he was way better than me. But then I had to learn to stand up. So my way of getting around that was like uh, I got a trench coat. I look like, you know, like a tri- I thought Prince was cool. He had a trench coat. I could get a trench coat. And I'll stand on stage in a trench coat. And I'll be cool in my trench coat. Right. It would have worked better if I wasn't, as it turned out, also shaving ginger with a knife and chewing <laughs> ginger. You know, like cooking. It's like a cooking show. but With a trench coat on. Yeah, fucking is asinine. Wow. But this is the stuff we go through. You know, like, you go, yeah. I'm going to play. I don't care. My voice is gone. I can't talk. I'm going to find a way. Uh, chewing ginger. Yeah. Okay, that's going to do it. It's not pleasant. But I will do it. Wow. You know? 
Did you eventually figure out like what's the best way to handle the anxiety and the the weirdness and the the what was the best way for you? Well, you know, that year where I spent or a year or two where I spent like on the acid, you learn some tools during that. Like one of them is just learning to breathe. Like breathing exercises? Kind of. Well, I mean, you know, terror is a self-perpetuating thing, you know, because your your heart rate speeds up. That makes you more agitated and more scared. If you slow your breathing down, your heart rate cannot increase. Like, if you keep yourself and you force yourself to breathe in and breathe out and breathe in, your heart rate's going to slow down. And that will take some of the edge off that. You know, it does. You know, I had to learn to do that that year because – for a while after that, I would wake up in the morning and think it was happening again, and I'd start to panic, and that's going to cause it to happen. But you just got to, like, you know, white-knuckle it. I still wake up a lot at, like, 6 a.m. Like, right as the dawn is coming up, I wake up and have a moment of, like, oh, God, not this shit. But now it's, like, reflexive to just stop it. Mm, but back then I had to, to make myself breathe, you know, like. Yeah. So, you know, so by the time I got to the stage fright thing, I, I wasn't really feeling stage fright. But also I think... I felt like I was in the right place. You know, like I could express anything I wanted up there. There's nothing wrong. Any new melody, anything I wanted to sing, any feeling I wanted to put into it, it was all art. It was all creativity, and there's nothing wrong about any of it. I mean, you don't want to sing off key all day long, but right. but basically you could just express yourself, and that was all by doing it, that's what you're there for. You're there to express yourself anyway. So anything you do is just a part of that. I felt pretty confident in that. And like this was whatever I did was the right thing to do because that's what we were doing anyways. By doing it, I make it the right thing to do. So is it safe to say that like the anxiety and the mental issues and all that stuff, it almost became tolerable because the art was so satisfying? I think it made it a lot better, especially finding songs. Finding the, the the whole idea of songwriting, for one thing, gave me a place to put all that stuff. That didn't fi fix the rest of the day, but I'd never had any place to put it before I wrote a song. And now it's like, well, on top of – people would ask me, is, is it cathartic to play music? And I don't think it is. It's not that – it doesn't process it and get it all out of you. But if you have to choose between a day where you just feel shitty – in a day where you feel shitty, but you write a song, mm -hmm. I'll take the song. Yeah. I accomplish something that day, and that's what we're supposed to be. You know, life is supposed to be about accomplishing things, making things, doing things. So take the day where you do something, and then, you know what, try and do it again tomorrow because it, it is better. It doesn't fix it. It's not replacing the difficulty. But at least what you know is that I can have difficulty, and I'm not a waste of space on the earth. I'm not falling apart. I'm not... I'm not nothing. I actually made a song. So in, in my difficulty of whatever yesterday was, well, I made something beautiful. Yeah. You know, and that's that's a powerful thing. It means that like while you were going through all that shit, you didn't just put your head in your hands and lay there. You you went ahead and made something and you can you can take that with you for the rest of your days. That song goes along with you, the sense of accomplishment, all the feelings of like because I think that's the hardest thing about mental illness is you know it's not what everybody's going through. You know it's harder than it needs to be. And there are people who are going through stuff. I mean, as I know now, they have their own difficulties. But it just seemed like it was harder. And there are times where you just want to go, I don't want to carry this today. You know, I'll just yeah. go sit here. But a big part of it 
is not to just sit there is to do was, something is that also exacerbated by a heavy tour schedule because like when you do i would imagine there's days that you just need to slow down and take breaks and when you're out there bang 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 show after show after show i would imagine there's very little of that time where you get to sit by yourself in a movie theater and just chill well there, you know like in anything in the arts there's a lot of sitting around you know, there's always going to be time, you know. When you're not on stage. Yeah, there's but, a lot of it. But you know it's coming that night. Yeah, but I there's don't. There's something to that, right, where you, if you have a bunch of shows in a row, like even if you have the whole day off, that, that show is looming. Yeah, but I didn't dread it. It you was didn't. the good part of the day. You know, it was the best part of the day. It was the one part of the day where I knew I was where I was supposed to be. Mm. I wasn't struggling with what to do. I, I, I had a. I even have a set, a set list, you know, so I, I know a path through the next two hours. That wasn't the problem, except, uh, you know, I wasn't, my voice is kind of weird. It can do a lot of great shit, but it's, uh, it's not particularly durable, and I sing really hard. Um, so it was not the best at recovering, and early on, a big part of it was learning, you know, there are limitations to how many days in a row I can do without paying for it. Like, even if you just do one three in a row for me, I'll be paying for it and recovering from it for the rest of the tour. Mm. Two on, one off, two on, one off works. We mostly do that. Every once in a while, we'll put an extra day off in there. But, like, we had to learn, and it took years to learn it, that you couldn't, you couldn't be too flexible about that. It might seem like you could only play this one thing. If you play three in a row, just do it that one time. But I'd be recovering the rest of the tour from that. And so we had to learn that because losing my voice, dealing with a lot of uh, – uh, getting nodes on my vocal cords because you have to take the only thing that really fixes nodes is one silence and two steroids you know like not anabolic but systemic cortisone like cortisone prednisone you know stuff like that that's heavy shit too, it is right? it's not great that's why that's why when i scraped my knee up that one time on tour it eventually got really infected uh because and also why it stayed infected where because they'd give me all the antibiotics for it and the antibiotics kick the shit out of the infection but you also have that prednisone in there, which keeps bringing it back and keeping it alive so it would come back over. Prednisone and kept the infection alive? Well, it, you know, steroids just kind of basically make things grow faster. That's why you heal faster. You rebuild muscle tissue faster. Aren't they just anti-inflammatories, those kind of steroids? No, but that's not what anti-inflammatories do. They, they help your body heal quicker by, like, reproducing itself quicker. Cell growth, I think, gets... I think gets like I think they're reducing inflammation. That's why things like ibuprofen are called non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Right, because but they, the way that steroids work and why they work so much better, I think, than like Advil is because they create cell growth that goes faster, mm. which is why like if you have a virus. Steroid side effects may increase the risk of staph yeah. infections. There it is. New research suggests that long-term use of powerful immune system suppressing steroids such as prednisone, hydrocortisone, and dexamethasone may increase risk of life-threatening staph blood infections by a factor of six. Holy shit. Yeah, so like when I got the infection, the antibiotics were kicking its ass, but the steroids were kind of also, it's like the opposite. Ramping it up. It's like pouring yeah. gasoline on it, you know, and so yeah. like it was never quite going away and, it, you know, it would keep coming back, which that, that stuff's also... Yeah, uh, that shit will make you a little crazy too. You know, prednisone can make you a little like antsy and crazy, which is since mm. I was already a little antsy and crazy. Oh no! I mean, it's a great drug for fixing your vocal cords. Did they have to give you IV antibiotics for your knee? A uh, little bit, like not IV, but did they give you a shot of it and then they'd give you the antibiotics to take home with you? Because my knee turned into a fucking balloon. I've had staph before. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's bad. rough. It, it's amazing how much those antibiotics wreck you, though. Yeah, like you're so tired. Well, they're like, turning everything off. Yeah. They're killing all the cell growth to stop the the one thing from growing more. Yeah. 
And, you know, that shit. That's why it's the same thing, like, uh, it, it fucks with your immune system because it shuts all that stuff down. That's why it's, you're, you know, some people are more of a risk for the COVID thing, too, because, right. you know, if you're on that kind of uh, autoimmune suppressors. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, a buddy of mine hurt his wrist, and they put him on what, the way he was describing it was, he said it was essentially like a low-level um, chemotherapy. He's like, wow. it was just whatever this shit was they were doing for his wrist was because he just had constant wrist pain, uh, severely exacerbated uh, the COVID symptoms. He got COVID oh. while he was on this stuff that was wrecking his immune system to try to deal with this autoimmune issue that he has in his wrists. And then the COVID just fucking swamped him because yeah. his body was like in severe compromised state already. That's the one thing they say that the biggest people who are still at risk from for getting COVID after being vaccinated are people who had autoimmune disorders or on medications for things like that. Because and obese know. people still, it's still a factor. Well, I imagine yeah. so because you, your body's having a harder time taking care of itself. And it's inflammation again. You're dealing yeah. with that's a big factor that. of obesity is you're dealing with inflammation everywhere. Yeah, it's um, when you hear about people that are taking different medications to deal with anxiety or depression, the, the frustrating thing for many of my friends that have been on these kind of medications is trying to find the right one and trying to get it dialed in and then dealing with all the stuff that's happening while you're trying to dial it in and find a lot of right. side effects for that medication. Yeah. Well, a lot of them were medications that weren't, you know, we don't really know. That's the other thing that's kind of it can really kill your your hope when you're dealing with mental illness is that we don't understand how it works the way we understand how other parts of the body work. We right. don't understand the brain. And a lot of these medications, they realize they work for mental things because they were medications for something else. And then it just happened to have this effect. So it's right. good, but it has a bunch of side effects. It was originally designed for something else. We don't know exactly how to tune it in. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, just the fact that like people who are ADD and really hyper, uh, you give them uh, speed, basically, right? And it makes them calm down. I know what the what, fuck. I mean, it's wild that it works <laughs> that way. I mean, because I, I had that problem, and when they gave me that, I was like, "This is the worst thing. I don't want to be more up." And then they gave it to me, and I was like, "Oh, I get it. I can think clearly." Okay, that's wild. It's wild that it works, it, but it does. It's like, you know, those drugs because your brain—we just don't understand the brain that well lately. Did you yet. ever try uh, meditating or like breathing exercises or exercise? Did you ever try any of those things to deal with? Yeah, I think exercise is really good. Um, uh, the breathing also obviously really helped. Meditation, I had a lot of problems with because I felt like uh, it almost felt like I was relaxing all the barriers and structures I had in there to keep the shit under control. Everything really? that I had to hold it together. When I would relax into the medication, I mean, to the meditation, it felt like it was like, I, I, it's something, it was just a way, that I, I don't know if it's actually what it does or just a way I was conceiving of it. In my mind, I was picturing like I was letting stuff loose. It's so crazy how many really creative people struggle, struggle with mental illness. It's almost more than don't. I, I'm, I imagine it has something to do with, you, you spend a lot of years keeping things to yourself, not communicating with other people as well as other people do you got a lot of stuff pent up and when you find a way to express it you dive into that you know yeah. and, and creativity and art is like one way also a lot of us don't deal with authority very well 
you know, and then you, now you find a, a lifestyle that provides independence, you know, yeah. like I haven't had a boss for a really long time. Isn't that nice? I mean, it's really nice, so you know, nice. like <laughs> I've been running an independent shop for, yeah. you know, 30 years now and like who'd have thought I, I'd be able to grow up and, you know, run my own company basically, which it's is fucking the cool. Best for everybody. If you could figure out a way to do that, just be your own boss, my God, your life would be so much different. The, the, the pressure and the weight of like a shitty boss who's, you know, like dominant over their employers, employees rather, and, you know, and cracks the whip and yells at everybody in the company meeting, you know, and all, the, the, all that shit you're dealing with, someone looking over your shoulder while you're doing your work, like, yeah. oh, fuck, the pressure of that, it's got to be crazy. But I mean, look, you're running a, a big thing here, you know, and, and you've got a lot of people working for you, and you know, being but a I boss don't. means- but what I are don't. all the people that are running around here? Dude, those security guys are cool as fuck. They just hang oh, out. Oh, they're security? Yeah. Oh. I mean, because part of being a boss is taking care of everybody. It's, dude, this is the most preposterous skeleton crew ever. For <laughs> something that reaches millions of people, it's the most ridiculous setup. But this is the way it works so good because it stays intimate. Because like yeah. I said, I've been to other podcasts that become big and they decide that they're now a Hollywood production. And I met people. I'm like, what do you do? Oh, I'm the executive producer. You're the executive producer of what? A conversation? <laughs> do we need an executive the producer? What are you talking about? So you've got directors, executive producers, you got camera directors, you got people who are sound guys, you got all these people. You have you have people that are assistants, you have people that are PAs, you have people that are on the set that are they're they're getting they're interns, so they're getting college credits to be on the set, and they're taking notes and talking shit, and and then occasionally there's problems because you know some PA said something stupid to an intern, and now you have to have HR. You know you have HR, you have human resources at your podcast. Like, oh my God, what have you done? The fuck have you done? You've you've created an office. Now you have a corporation. Like you, you used to have just a conversation where it was you and your buddy and there was some fucking YouTube video and you had a couple of cameras running. And now, because it became successful, you changed what the whole thing is and now you got people breathing down your neck and you got a bunch of people telling you what to do. Like, oh. I, I've been doing this thing, you know, I got, you know, about a month into the quarantine. I started, I, I went to my girlfriend and I said, I, I'm really worried that I'll just wake up a year from now and I won't have done anything. You know, I don't want to do that. I'm going to start, I'm going to learn to cook everything, you know? So I just started like, I've always liked cooking, but I started really researching it and trying to like make all kinds of shit for her and for our few friends that we were seeing, you know? And then it seemed kind of cool after a while to be doing this. So I started making little videos and just like putting them up on our Instagram stories. And now I'm like sort of filming them myself. What and, kind of stuff do you cook? Uh, I mean, all kinds of shit. I did crawfish, New Orleans crawfish bread a few weeks ago. I did crawfish uh, bread. Yeah. It's like this thing you can only get at the jazz fest where it's like, kind of make this loaf of like a bread that's got stuffed cheese and crawfish and spices in it i think it's i've always wanted it because it's my favorite thing from jazz fest but i i never knew how to make it and i'm, I'm still it's still a work in progress but like uh red sauce meat sauce like uh I, my italian shit has gotten really good um what else have i done I don't know, I've done about 20, 30 of them now. I've been putting them up on Instagram TV. And, and it's catching on with all these people who are like, I mean, I have a bunch of friends who are chefs who are really good cooks. I'm not, but I've been really trying, you know. And then I've been trying to show people how to cook stuff that's, you know, some of it's as simple as just, look, maybe you don't know how to make grilled cheese. Grilled cheese is great. I'm going to show you. It's really simple. And some of it is complicated like a 12-hour meat sauce, you know, like. But, you know, I as I was doing this, it's – 
unbeknownst to me, it started, all these people started getting interested. And my friend who works on American Idol now, she's a producer for it. She lives here, but she flies out there for that. Um, she's my piano player's wife. And she's like, yeah, man, all these people on the set, they all obsessed with your cooking videos. And three of them come to me and said, like, what about a TV show? We should, we should get Adam a cooking show. And then, you know, uh, talked to my manager, Mark, and he, a bunch of people came to him and said, we want to put together a show for Adam, like a, a cooking show. And my thought was like, look, I really like what I'm doing. I like the cooking. I like filming it myself and editing myself. It's hard. I had to learn how to do look it. Look at you. That's crawfish bread I'm trying to make. And what do you use? Are you using a starter? Is this like a sourdough bread? Like what kind no, of bread I, I is used, it? I tried it the first time using my pizza dough recipe, and that was good, but it, it's the wrong texture. This one I... I got. I found a recipe for like a like a cheesy bread that looked like chewier, and I thought that would be a better recipe. And it's still not the right. It's still not right. But bread's not my. Th- I'm not really a baker. I've just been trying to. You should get learn together with it. Tom Papa. Do you know Tom Papa? Uh huh. Tom Papa the comic. No, I don't know. Hilarious comedian. Amazing baker. Really? His fucking sourdough bread is off the charts, and he's been obsessed with it for years and years and years. He's been working on cultivating the perfect sourdough bread and figuring out how to do it. He's got a his starter's like thirty years old or some shit. I forget how old it is. Wow. You know, they, they start yeah, with yeah, yeah. And he he brings over fresh. We used to when we lived in L.A. I would give him elk meat, and he would give me fresh bread. We would nice. make a trade-off, you know, and uh, his bread is off the charts, man. It's so good, and it looks good, too. Like, he's got the presentation down. Show show this oh motherfucker God, some Tom Papa bread. I figured it would have been the higher up on it. Bro, it's so good. Oh, my God. We would eat it on the podcast. Just, just put some <sighs> butter on it. Oh, sensational. Sensational. And he just is a master at bread. Maybe you could, like, talk to him, and he'll give you some tips on how to make the bread better. And I, that's I, what I need. He's really he's got this show called Getting Baked with Tom Prop. Top that's Papa. the flour I use. I love yeah. that flour. It's really good. What kind of flour is it? It's King Arthur's all-purpose flour, and they just make it better. It's mm. good flour. So, is this just him talking? It's part one. He's got a look. There's one. Oh, yeah. Look at that. Come on, give me a picture of that bread. That's Perfect. a beautiful piece of bread. Goddamn perfection, and it tastes as good as it looks. When you slice it open, he had a show with the Food Network, but they canceled it. But you know what? That's better anyway. He really should be doing it. There's me eating his bread. He, he really should oh, yeah. be doing it 100% on uh, YouTube. I mean, that's, that's really where it belongs. So just something like that where nobody tells you what to do. Just, just do it. Well, that was the thing because everyone's talking about getting a cooking show. I'm like, I don't think you understand. They say, well, you would love it. I'm like, why would I love it? I love cooking. I don't love going on TV shows. Yeah. And I don't know that I would love having a TV show. That's a whole different thing from cooking. Then having you've a got TV some show. Greasy producer that's like, Adam, we're going to do this again. But this time, I, you know, I just, I'm not feeling you having a good time. I want you to smile. I want you to smile. And I want, uh, your best friend is in this room. Okay. This camera is your best <laughs> friend. I want you to treat and you'd be like, what the fuck have I done? Well, what have I thing. done? People think having a TV show sounds like fun because they like the idea of being on TV. Right. But I, I got enough. Well, I mean, I'd like a little more fame. If this record does really well, it'd be great. It's like a band where it could be magic or it could be fucking hell. You know, it could be the lead singer and the guitar player hate each other and they only do the gig and then they talk shit about each other afterwards. Or it could be like a brotherhood where they love each other and it's great. And that's how TV shows are. That's how any cooperative effort when you get a group of people together are. It's like you can get lucky and you can get really unlucky 
And sometimes some really successful shows are really unlucky collaborations where the people are good at what they do, but the stress of working with these cocksuckers, they, they fucking hate the other people. And I, I know people that work on television shows and they'll have a drink afterwards and go, fuck man, my executive producer is such a twat. I can't handle this dude. All he wants to do is blah, 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 blah. And you're like, oh, I thought you were on TV. I thought everything was great. It's not, it's not great. It's, it's a cooperative effort. The beautiful thing about doing a cooking show on your own with just a camera and YouTube is it's just you. It's yeah. purity of vision and expression. There's just singularity. One guy, your thoughts and what you're trying to do. And you could figure it out. And you could say, you know, I used to do it like this. I don't like doing it like that anymore. I've, I've realized I, I like myself more when I prepare this way or when I do that or when I approach it that way. You'll find it. You'll find yeah, it. But it's nice, too. But if you've got some fucking network, you know, we've gone, uh, gone over the metrics, Adam, and it seems like whenever you do this, people tune out. We're, it's like every show, it's 13 minutes in, they're tuning out. So what do we got to do to keep those people tuning in for another 13? Because Daddy wants to buy a new house. What can we do, Adam? I'm looking at a Lamborghini. I like to get a Lamborghini, and I can't get a Lamborghini if this is not successful. So what do we do, Adam? I have a Maserati. I want to pay my lease. How do I make this show better so I make more money and put my kids through college? I want to bribe USC so I can get my children into that school. I need more money to pay off people. You're dealing with so many different people and so many different issues. And to do something creative, it's, it's so hard to do it with a lot of other people's input. Yeah, just, I mean, that's the nice thing about our creative thing is it's me and six of my best friends and a producer and... It's all there. It's not like I mean I've worked on movie stuff. That you got it, it's like a lot of levels of people and a lot more money and it's a it's a huge hassle. The executive levels, like you're saying, that is yeah. the biggest problem. It's like yeah. all these people who have to justify their job. You and know, they're it's not like, creative. No, generally and, speaking, they're that's not what they do. What they do is try to maximize profit. They try to maximize profit, and you know, and sometimes it gets in the way of creativity because they're like, oh, I don't, you know, think the way, the way you're doing it, I was like, I just don't think this is the best way for our image and our brand. And you're like, yes. what? What are you saying? What is this? And I'm sure you had to deal with that with music, right? I mean, you guys yeah, changed we didn't have to your... listen to it. Right. I mean, Did that's you have that kind of record company pressure? A little bit, but you know, we had a huge bidding war at the beginning. Like, pretty much every record company in the world offered us a, a contract. From at, the beginning? At the beginning. Well, how, before we were signed. How did you get signed? Like, what, well, we did... had a lot of demos, and we had been making them for a while, and they were really, our one of our guitar players was a really good engineer, and he had a little studio, and so when we made demos, we had like, you know, you're supposed to get a two-song demo or a three-song demo. We had a 15-song demo. Oh, wow. Which is, I mean, on the one hand, we're just huge rubes, and people that got it at first were laughing at us until they listened. Because, you know, it's the whole first album. It's like it's, right. We had a lot of songs, you know. And, and uh, so when it got out, when we finally got a manager and a lawyer and that got out and the record companies got these demos, it, it was like they came to see us. There were two weekends in like 91 or 92, January of 92 maybe, where we played these shows on two consecutive weekends. And between the two weekends, every record company in the world came to see us play. And the only people that didn't offer us deals were like people in the same company. So like, you know, Columbia and... Epic were both part of Sony, so only Columbia offers deal. But other than that, we, we got a shitload of offers, and there were millions of dollars on the table. And we signed with Geffen, and we took home, I think, $3,000 each because they gave us complete creative control in the contract and a higher royalty. 
So which was doesn't matter unless it pays off, but you know it did. And that was back in the day when people actually bought albums. Yeah, which is why you know we did really well and we had higher higher royalty back then. Um, we just and we didn't owe any money because we only took home like you know I took home three thousand dollars. I bought a 1970 Carmen Ghia and drove it. Did you really? Of, yeah, I brought a convertible red 1970 Carmen Ghia and drove the it down to LA Volkswagen. to make the record. <laughs> exactly. I, it's the, I still have it. It's my only. It's really? the car I have. I, I'll never get rid of it. It's I your it only my first, car. You yeah, drive that? Because I live well, not much. I mean, I, I did when I lived in LA. But I, I mean, I, I live in New York now, so I don't need a car. And so, when you drive around New York, you drive this Carmen nah, Ghia. I don't drive around New York. You walk right. and take the subway. Right. No, my it, my Ghia. I, I actually two of my friends and I bought a winery a few years ago, and so we were partners in Elise Winery. And so my uh, the guy who runs my whole winery, the he's a. Uh, He's got it in his garage in Napa. So I can wow. I, when I go up there, I haven't driven it up. I haven't been up there since he took it from me uh, right before the pandemic started. So I haven't been back there to drive my car around. But it's it in stopped? his garage. Pretty much. I mean, there's definitely some been some things repaired over the years, but it's you know it's pretty much the original shit, and it's uh, repaired but not upgraded. It's basically there's a better stereo is. in there now, oh, okay. and the, I don't think the wheel the wheel's not original. The steering wheel's not original. Uh, definitely some of the mirrors. I mean, it's not. It's not. It looks cherry. It's beautiful, and it is cherry red. But uh, I can show you. I'll find it somewhere. But it's a. It's a great little car. It was just when I was a kid. I always loved those Carmen Ghias. They look like the, the bathtub Porsches, kind of, which is what they're based on, you know. And uh, I just I love the Roadster, the whole idea. You know, I, the sports car didn't really do it for me as much as the Roadster. I love the idea of driving around in a little convertible. Like, yeah. And I always wanted one of those. And when I got my record deal, I took my three thousand and spent two thousand on a Carmen Ghia. Barely ran back then. Drove it down to L.A. Made the record. You know, it was my car for a while. I did at one point buy a Boxster when they came out with Boxsters. I'd never owned a new car in my life, and so I wanted a, one that was like that. And that was great too. That was a great little car. Um, Boxster's a beautiful little car. Yeah, it was great. It's a brilliant car too. Like mid-engine and yeah, and not yeah. like it doesn't go three thousand miles an hour. It's not a real no, sports it's... car, but it's it was like an upgraded version of my Ghia. Yeah, it could. The problem with Porsche, they have a real situation where their 911 is essentially a, a poor design in comparison to the Boxster. The Boxster and the Cayman are a better design in terms of like weight distribution because it's a mid-engine car yeah. where the engine is right behind the driver and then the axle is behind the engine. So the, the, the balance of weight is beautiful. And it's, It was a great car. Yeah, but Porsche hamstrings them. They keep them lower horsepower. They keep them. They they don't have the same uh, suspension setup. It's just they don't. They don't. It's particularly horsepower. They don't let it eclipse the 911. No, I mean it's not. It's nowhere near as fast as yeah. as, as my. I had friends who had the other kinds of Porsches and. Not that I was trying, but like it was clear the difference in their cars. Yeah, but not anymore. There's now they have a Cayman GT4. And then um, they also do, uh, there's companies that, like aftermarket companies, they take it and they build it up. I'll show you my car. I want to see it. I love those. Those uh, Carmen Ghias were like a, a funky 1970s sort of lost car. Like, yeah, see. oh, that's gorgeous, man. Wow, that's so pretty. There's like two, three pictures of it right around it right there. That's really pretty, man. Yeah, I love that thing. Wow. That's a really good color, too, for that car with the chrome and everything. Can I send this to Jamie? Yeah, I'll, air, I'll airdrop it to you, Jamie. Okay. So you can see it. All right, here you go, buddy. 
You got it? Yeah, that was my first record advance. So I'm never going to sell it because, like... No, that's it dope. Was, it's, it's historical. Yeah, it's special for me that way. And it's always... It's also... Like, it was the car I dreamed about having as a kid. You know, really? I don't people, you dreamed I just, about Carmen Gia's? Really? I just really loved that, and I loved that... Uh, I loved that Corvair Monza, the yeah, unsafe at any speed car. That's a pretty car, man. Yeah, they're just kind of beautiful cars. It represents the time in which it was created, too. It's like you look at it and you instantaneously know, like, oh, that's like late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. Yeah. It's got a little bit of a vibe, and I, I just I, oh, I love it's it. got a lot yeah. of a vibe. Yeah. No, yeah. I love those a lot, man. Um, you were there. You were in the, the middle of your rock star life when Napster hit. <laughs> yeah. What was that like? Well, I mean, I guess in a way, when I look at it overall, I shouldn't be surprised because if there's one thing that we've never really valued as a culture, I mean, just humanity has never really valued the arts. It's like, I mean, we do. We understand that a painting is going to be worth $7 million or something. But in general, it's just like something we want to be entertained with. You know, and we'll spend money on new tires or a VCR, but... If we can get away with it, we don't want to spend money on records, you know, or, you know, that's the kind of thing where if we could get away with taking it, we would. And, you know, it, partially this is the fault of the record companies at the time, because, you know, if you're going to tell me that a record is worth a certain amount of money and then you're going to tell me that a CD is worth the same amount of money and I'm going to take both of those home with me. And now you're going to tell me that a, a, a group of ones and zeros that equals that CD is worth the same amount of money as the CD, I'm going to call it a little bullshit. You know what I mean? When they went to putting out digital music and iTunes came around and let them sell it on the store there, you know, it should have been $5 for a record, not 15 But they didn't want to cripple the physical record sales. Is that what the idea behind it was? I think part of it was, but it was short-sighted. And they also were like, well, if people aren't going to buy these anymore, we don't want to sell things for $5. They just panicked. They got to they got to get the money where they could get it. But, you know, people weren't stealing records before that. It's entirely possible that if you'd said, okay, now we're doing digital and it's a $5. It's $5 for a record because there isn't anything. You get the music and you get all the art, but it's not costing us anything. We don't have to get trucks. We don't have to build physical, which is true. It used to, the hardest thing about being an independent record company, because I had a couple independent record companies, was pressing up the CDs and then getting trucks to take them to mom and pop CD stores where you'd get three in there. And if you were lucky enough to have the guys who own the store love you, they'd play it in the store and then someone would buy them. But then they're gone because they only had three and you got to get more out there because now they don't have it at all. That was distribution was the hardest thing. And that's gone with all of a sudden you just got to load it up. It's easy. They should have made it a $5 thing and, and been like, okay, now you're getting something that has no body to it. We're not going to make you pay $15 for that. Mm. You know, and, and they should have done that, and they didn't because they, they panicked. And so after a while, when people, people felt a little insulted by being told that now they should buy the same thing that, was a, that they used to take home with them, they should buy it for the same amount of money now that it doesn't exist at all. And, you know, and so when Napster came around and everyone could suddenly just steal it, I think they were like, well, fuck these guys. And I don't think they were saying fuck you to the artists, really. I think they were mostly saying fuck you to the record companies. But when the artists protest, they said fuck you to the artists, too. That's the part that really bothered me about Napster. Not that they were taking the stuff, but that when someone like uh, Lars you know, Ulrich you know, from uh, Metallica. Metallica came out and stood up and said what everybody already knew was true, you're just stealing from art. You're just stealing from us. And people were like, fuck you. you know? Yeah, but the, see, the thing is, 
it's it the comparison between that and a VCR and tires is not valid because it, you can't just duplicate a VCR and tires instantaneously on a computer, but you could duplicate these these recordings once they were in digital form. You could just duplicate it over and over again and send them to people. There's no issue whatsoever doing that. And people always felt like it's not costing you any money because someone had to buy it originally. It's costing you if I won't buy it and then I download it instead, but maybe I was never going to buy it in the first place. Maybe I'm just but, downloading it. But what we what you know for sure. But is you know that, what I'm saying? Like this this weird justification yeah, that people have. How you where it's not a physical it. thing that they're stealing. It's not like there's a warehouse they go to and you have boxes of CDs and they go, Oh, you got so many CDs, I'll just take these CDs. They like no, why, but there was just one makes, that got sold. But it's you but know that's what I'm saying? just because it's easier that well, way. It's a, well, it's a new thing. Well, also the truth but it's is a like, completely gray area. Once you've made a once you buy a book, you could copy the book. And press it up yourself and sell it, because but you're buying something. That, that's the thing about art is it can be kind of ephemeral. You're buying something that just sort of exists as an idea, but that's you know the difference is once you, you could print up a book yourself and sell it, but the author deserves probably to get the money more than you do because it was his thoughts that went into it. And the thing about the music and the books, because it's happened to books too, is that it just it was easy to duplicate. Yeah. But you are stealing because we know that within a year. Uh, record sales had dropped. Well, not a year. Probably within about three years, record sales had dropped by fifty percent. Now they don't exist. You know, like, but that's because now we have Spotify. But for a while, it dropped so much. The industry had been making all this money, and then it was gone. Like, right? But let's like look at it that way. It dropped, and then it doesn't exist. Right yeah. now, it doesn't exist at all. So wasn't it just a harbinger of things to come? Oh yeah. I mean, it it's it wasn't necessarily stealing as much as it was an introduction to a completely new way of distributing music and the fact that it was digital, they had to find new ways in order to profit because this thing of like buying physical copies, it's not valid anymore. Like some people still do it because they love vinyl and some people do it because they, it's, they're nostalgic and they like to have CDs. But the reality is most people are just getting digital. Right, but we're not really, well that's part of what happened is the same thing that caused the problem in the beginning was the record companies who were being so greedy made it very easy to feel like it was okay to take it. Because I, I don't disagree with that because you were getting ripped off as a consumer. Right. If you want to tell me that something is the same amount of money when it doesn't exist as when it does, you, fuck you. Right. But also what happened eventually was when they came up with Spotify, the record companies went to Spotify and said, pay us a lump sum and, and we'll give you all of our music. And that's not trickling down to us in any way like it, it used to with record sales. It only does if you own the music, right? Right, but I mean, like you'd have to your make... music. Even so, you're still getting kind of screwed. Very people, few people own their own music for one thing. Record companies are never giving that up. And you can get it now kind of reverting to you in a shorter amount of years, but that was nothing that was available back then. When did that change? Well, because record companies have lost a lot of their power. before, you, Because you needed a record company before, for one thing. Right. It was too expensive to make a record, and it was too expensive to distribute it. So you needed the record company. Now you can make a record on your computer at home, and you can distribute it by uploading it onto Bandcamp. It doesn't cost you anything, so you don't really need a record company as much. You can have one, and they'll do a lot of good things for you sometimes. Like, we did this record with a record company. But we only but that sign, was your choice. Right. We sign one-album deals now, and we do it when we're done with the record. We go to the record company and say, we have something. We, we'll let you work with us. You can do some of the distribution. You can help us with some promo. And right. there's there's some valid reasons to do it. Uh, and we're getting it all back in a few years. But you didn't have any leverage back then. Do you remember that Courtney Love article that she wrote? I think it was in Spin Magazine. 
where she sort of laid out all the financial problems with record deals. Yeah, there were a lot. Did you ever see that? Mm-mm. I mean, really I remember the idea of it, but I don't remember the article at all. I think, you know, people were like, there's no fucking way she wrote this. It was a ghostwriter because it was really well well written. Could be. Could be. Uh, but it, you saw it, and you get to the end of it, and you're like, Jesus Christ, this is how it works? Like, it's really kind of crazy. Yeah, it was terrible. And then when you hear today, what they're doing is apparently they make these deals with bands when they first sign deals. them. Yeah, well, you they have everything. Part they of take a piece too, yeah. of your touring, yeah. which doesn't make any sense. It's crazy. They take a piece of your merchandise, which doesn't make any sense. They take a piece of you. They p- take everything. Yeah. Everything you do. I remember the first time a record company came to us with one of those offers. What did they say? Well, they were like, yeah, we're going to do a new deal. We're going to give you a Did bunch you of money up front. Sul- sulfur in the air? Well, it was just kind of like, let me get this straight. You are going to give me a piece of the part of our industry that is completely disappearing and worthless now. And in exchange, you'd like me to give you several pieces of the only things that still make money. No. <laughs> like, what? Did, how did they phrase it? Oh, this is what I want to know. Like, how do they make that sound good? Well, they would offer a lot of money up front, you know. But it's all recoupable. That's the thing about For money them, up front. Yeah, it's, it's all recoupable. You know, it, it you just, don't really get any other money until they get that money back. Right, and and they want to take that money back out of the small percentage in your deal, not out of the overall. That was the other thing about record companies that was so insulting. Like, we're gonna. It's gonna cost this much to make the record. And you'll start making money again when it's recouped. Not recouped out of money, period. But only, like, if it costs $200,000 to make a record or something back then, whatever it was, uh, you weren't recouped when the record made $200,000. You were only recouping out of your 15% of that $200,000. So however many it takes to six times that or whatever it takes to you know recoup out of your 15%, then you'd start making more. They had so many ways of fucking you that it was just like, it was a little insulting. Um, Jesus Christ. But there were a lot of things. When the internet came along and changed all that, a lot of things got crazy in the record companies because they panicked at the fact that the internet all of a sudden, instead of being this really wild thing that connected everyone in the world for free, basically, which is what it really does, which you, sh- you should be able to make a positive use of something that does that. I mean, it really is quite the tool, as we've realized in, in years since then. But all they could see was that it was like this drain that was slowly sucking all their money away. So they, that was, you know, like they saw Napster and what Napster was doing and they associated the whole internet with that. Like I remember like a year or two after that it all happened, we were doing a record. It might have been Saturday nights and Sunday mornings. I don't think it was hard candy. So it was a few years later and ABC comes along and they are, they want us to be on Good Morning America. They love the record and they want to feature our singles playing on the front page of abc.com, which was a big website then, uh, for a week and a half leading up to the release. They're going to basically put our videos and everything on the front page of abc.com playing for anybody. What an advertisement. That's like way better than, it's great, you know. Uh, Universal's response was, okay, well, how much are you going to pay us to let us use the video? They're like, nothing? (laughs) And they said, well, then you can't use it. So we lost all that promo. It happened like just just about like this is a few years ago when we released some Wonder Wonderland, our last record. So it's like 2014. We were playing festivals in Europe. We we're touring. We we're playing Pink Pop in Holland. It's the biggest festival in Holland. It's one of the oldest festivals in Europe, and it's the sixth time we've played it. We at that point, us and Pearl Jam have played that festival more than any other band at that point. So they come to us before the show, like early that afternoon, and they told us that uh, 
the national radio station, whatever, like the BBC in Holland, and the national TV station would like to broadcast our entire set live. So national TV, you're set on radio and television when you play. Okay, that's pretty cool too, right? Yeah, we just need you to sign this thing, get the rec company to approve it and sign this thing. So same question. What are they going to pay us? We're like, you're kidding, right? Later on, that that guy, one of the lawyers came back and called our tour manager. He goes, look, look, just don't, next time don't tell me. Just do it. It's fine. I can't, it's corporate rules. I can't do anything. It comes down from the top. I cannot say yes, but it's crazy not to do it. Wow. But that's the kind of, they got so panicked about the internet. There's no, you want to know why the rec company is a fucking shambles? Because they couldn't think any more complicated than Napster bad, internet right. bad. So we should just like, we're, we're losing money. We should get everyone to pay us something every time. Otherwise but, we're going to die. But now they make like similar slimy deals with artists that they were doing before, but now they figured out a way to weasel through streaming, right? Oh, yeah. But what I don't understand is what are they offering? I mean, I I guess... Promotion? Money to make it, because maybe you don't have any money. Maybe you need to be in a studio because you got a band and you can't do it on your home, on your computer. God, but that seems like studio. Promotion is a big thing. Getting you on the radio, it's still something to get on the radio. It it does have some meaning to get you playlisted. The radio? Yeah, it still has some... The fucking radio is still a real thing? Yeah, it's still something. You know, how I mean, much is it? Well, how many, it gets how you, many people are listening to the radio? Well, don't forget this about streaming is that a lot of people on their way to work and stuff. It doesn't have to be terrestrial radio. It could be satellite radio. Right. And like, you know. But think about this. Here's the problem with, look, you want Spotify, uh, you can get anything you want. You can hear anything you want to hear, right? But you don't. The, the only bad thing about getting anything you want is there's no way to know you want something you haven't heard yet. You know what I mean? There's no way. You have to be, it's the problem with it. You, you have to be introduced to new stuff. And so like I can go on Spotify today and listen to any record I want, and I, I do, but I, I can't use it. It's not going to necessarily show me new music. So I can't get anything new. So if I got a new song and I'm a new band, somebody's got to play me somewhere. Record company can get you on playlists probably. I don't know if it's worth the trade-off. And they can get you on the radio, help you promote that. That might get people to go to you on Spotify and get you streams because if you're new, you, you can't get people to request you until they know you exist. And so there are some – you need to break that ground somehow. That's hard to do. You know, I could see some value in that. I don't know that it balances out against the deals they're offering most people. Like we don't have those same deals because like you're not getting my record with all that crap. You're not getting You're not getting Butter Miracle. By offering me, by wanting a piece of my touring and my merch, yeah. you're never getting it for in a million years. And you're also not getting it if you want to keep my record in perpetuity, because fuck you, I'll put it out myself. And you're not getting it, you know, if you want, like, to give me a 20% or 15% royalty anymore. Not a chance. You can have 20%, maybe. You know what I mean? I'll take 80 now. But I don't know that every band can force them to make that deal i just don't understand their position in the food chain they're when I, if i'm looking at it objectively from the outside i'm like are they a promotional organization kind of like it seems like like a radio show or a podcast has far more promotional power if there was a podcast that's dedicated to breaking music like a podcast on a streaming service like spotify that has deals to distribute stuff and says you know we're just going to play the coolest shit like you 
decide, hey, it's me, Adam. I got a fucking great show, and I'm going to do this. I'm going to break great songs. And, like, that would be so much more valuable than any other form of promotion. And if you could attach it to an internet internet entity, like some sort of a, a Instagram page that they had set up with a lot of followers or people knew they could go there and cool music would be broke there. I mean, you would you'd cut them completely out of this food chain because I don't understand the position where they could get a 360 degree deal. That the 360 deal is like so bonkers to me that oh, you would get live touring and how much? And someone told me they get 50 percent. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure every it's the it's the art of the deal there. Right. It, that's the Wild West still, and it was back then. That don't is forget, so like, crazy though. 50 percent of live touring is so. If that's true, someone said that. Well, it's, I'm sure they've gotten that from some That's people. That's bonkers. Yeah, but I mean, don't forget that at a certain level, live touring, it takes a lot of people to get into the profit in live touring. Mostly you're I'm losing saying. money. But not only that, but if you have a manager or an agent, right? The manager or the agent, they don't get that much. They don't get 50%. No, no. But they're not giving you money to tour, to get 50%. too. Well, in the early days, they'd pay you money. I don't know. I, I can't believe I'm def- I'm not trying to defend them. I, I can't stand most record companies. I, I will say this. Since we've been independent, Working with record companies is pretty much a pleasure because we can, we get the right yeah, situation leverage. where we can get them to do what we want them to do without getting ripped off, and they do some great work. Right. My experiences since becoming independent with record companies have been nothing but positive. They've done great jobs for us, but the other in the old days. But don't forget, like like music for me as a fan, okay, is way better than it's ever been before because it's so easy for bands to make music, and so inexpensive that they can all do it. And that means there's way more bands making way more great music. Bands can stay together for longer, so they actually get really, really good. As a fan, it's an amazing time. But you still have way more music than you ever have before. And if I'm one of those individual bands, I've got to find a way to rise up out of the masses and get anyone to notice me. Now the question is, how do you do that? How do you get anyone to notice that you exist? You want to go on tour? It's expensive to go on tour. And you're not going to break even necessarily even until you get up to breaking even just on the money you're spending and the money you're making. You can sell merch and make money too. But like theater size, it could be a couple thousand people before you break even. So how do you tour for a while when you can't possibly draw that kind of people? Right. It's, it's cost money. I'm, that's one of the reasons I think people can turn to record companies. They need money to tour. If they have a band and they can't, they found they can't do it in their home. They need money to go to the studio. There, there and they can don't be necessarily understand the business, and the record companies do. Yeah, and they got better lawyers. Yeah. So you can get. I mean, they're still. I'm sure. It also probably you makes you feel like you're attached to something big. Yeah. Like, hey, it Universal did, that for me. did this. Yeah. I hey. felt like I mean, when I got that deal, I felt like I was on top of the world. Yeah, all that stuff that had been pent up inside me all those years that finally got released when I was making writing songs, still no one was hearing those songs, and like the knowledge that people would, that I'd at least get a shot, you know, I was on Geffen, my label mates, and it was a little. I mean, Geffen was different from any place else for sure, but it was a little bit like the Viper Room. It was like I knew all those guys, right. the Posies, uh, Maria McKee. Nirvana, you know, like we uh, Sonic Youth. I, I met them all right in the beginning. Like we right. got to know everybody, and it was cool. That it was, it was really an incredible feeling. You know, the deal itself was probably shitty in some other ways, good in some ways because we argued for it. But in order to get those royalties, we gave up all I mean, a lot of money, more than most people thought was smart, 
you know, we had a lot of money on the table, and if we'd never been successful, maybe we would have regretted never keeping any of that. Who argued for you to do that? Was that your idea? Me? Was it, yeah? I mean, I, th I don't think our lawyer was against it either, or our managers. I think we all were pretty excited about the band. They had a lot of faith in us. There was a reason everybody wanted to sign us. We had good songs and a lot of them, and that's like the gold standard for a band. Like, it's one thing to have a sound that's cool, but you don't know if that's going to mean anything in a couple years. But songs, that's re reproducible. If you've got right. good songs and not just one, it, you could probably write good songs next time too. And that's that that's per that seems like some real value, you know. So I, I had a lot of faith in this, and I wanted a career in this. I didn't want, I wasn't there for like a payoff. I wanted to, something to do for the rest of my life. How long was it after you signed before things got really weird? Um, like before you really popped. Oh. We blew, let's see, we got signed in like sometime in uh, mid-92, and I think we blew up in, the record came out in the fall of 93, and we blew up in the spring of 94. We didn't feel it yet, but it, it was start, we played Saturday Night Live in January of 94, and we weren't even in the top 200. I don't, I'm not sure why they put us on. They liked the band, but... The record jumped 40 spots a week for five or six weeks. After we played around here on, on uh, Saturday Night Live, the record literally, I mean, jumped 40-plus spots every week for five weeks and landed us at, like, 13 for a couple weeks, then six for three weeks, and then we were two for two years. Wow. Never one, but uh, two for a long—we were one on our next record. But uh, the first record never got to number one. It was—people kept jumping us. Bonnie Raitt jumped us. <laughs> the fucking Lion King jumped us. The Lion King. That was a huge record, you know? Yeah, I'm sure. And Ace of Bass jumped us. The last one was The Lion King. We just, we had been at two for so long. Bonnie Raitt came up, went back down. Ace of Bass came up, went back down. And we were like, we're going to be number one because we we're still selling like 40,000 records a week for like a year. It was, just went on forever. That's crazy. And then we were like, we're, we had a really good week with something and it seemed like it was going to go up again. And then The Lion King came out and it was just like, <laughs> nah, we're never going to see number one. That must have been, must have felt like a real genius move though to get royalties, to get less money up front and then to get royalties like, God damn that, Adam. When that second or third check came in, the one that was like the big one was like, oh, fuck. Told you, bitches. Fuck. Especially the publishing check because that mostly went to me. The record, we still split everything evenly in the band um, for the other stuff, you know, like just the general record royalties, we split evenly. And even the publishing, I mean, I give a third of every song. My songs are divided up. Music is a third, lyrics is a third, and then whoever plays on it in the band gets a third. We split between us, you know. So, you know, but still, that publishing check was, that was a, that was a big thing. What it did it cool. feel like to all of a sudden be rich? Uh, I, I wasn't sure what to do. Um, <laughs> I, I, I remember, like, I bought, I just bought a lot of CDs, and I bought a lot of uh, things that went on shelves. I bought CDs, I bought DVDs, or not then, it was like uh, VHS and, uh, uh, what's the, laser, laser disc? discs. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I bought a few pieces of art. I bought some paintings. You know, my a guy is one of my best friends now, Felipe Molina, who did the album cover for Somewhere Under Wonderland, our last record. And painted a different painting for every song in there. Um, I bought a couple of his pieces. I was wandering through uh, like Soho. We were on tour, and I I kept looking. This I went to this gallery. I, I never really wandered through art galleries, and I kept seeing these paintings by this guy, and I loved them. 
And I, I spent a bunch of time in there one day, and then I went off. We played a show, like, at the Beacon or something. And I, I went back down there the next day, and I looked at these paintings again. And, like, the third day I went down there, I was like, I, I went away that night, and I, and I thought, well, I could actually buy a painting. I mean, it was a couple thousand dollars. It wasn't really, really expensive or anything like that, but it's more money than I'd ever spent on anything other than my car, you know. And I, I bought a few of his paintings and I sent them to my place in California. I was like, I'd never owned a, anything like that. And so it was cool. I mean, I, honestly, I didn't know what to do with it. I, I uh, had an indie record company too over the years. Uh, Spent a lot of money on making records. Uh, lost a lot of money making records. Made some great records. Why did you decide to start an indie record company? I, I had a lot of friends who I thought were really good. And I just didn't think they had good... I thought record companies were really bad situations. And I thought they pushed them to do things that weren't really great for their band musically. And I thought I, I could make really cool records with these guys. They're great. But what Nobody about realizes it. Publicity, publicity. What about you know, publicizing them and well, we tried. Them. That's what yeah. I mean. We made great records, and we didn't it, like. It, like I said, the hardest part was distribution. It was really hard to sell the records. I think the bands got great reviews, critics loved them. Uh, you know, we did okay, but we never really. It, it felt. That's why I like doing the festival now, because I never feel like I failed, and I, I felt like I failed a lot with the indie record company because we never made big successes of any of the bands. We tried really hard and spent Did a lot of money. Any on of it. them become marginal successes? Well, some of them were already. I mean, uh, you know, Gigolo Ants were a band from Boston that I really That's loved. That's hilarious. They're man. great. I know. Gigolo Ants. Yeah, A U N T S. Oh, yeah. It's a <laughs> Sid Barrett better. song. The guy that was the uh, the original lead singer of Pink Sex Floyd. Oh, okay. So he had a song called Gigolo. That's the guy Ants. that went crazy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's based on one of his songs. But they're an incredible band. They're a fucking fantastic band. And, I, you know, they were some of my best friends. I lived with the lead singer for a long time. Have you ever thought about doing that again now, like the way we were talking about? Like if you promoted something like that, you did it through a podcast and you had a social media page, like a Facebook page or an Instagram page or both, like that seems like now that's a viable strategy to introduce people to bands and those bands could actually probably take off if they're really great bands like you could actually get eyes on them and well, ears on them that's what i feel like i do do now because i've without the record company part of it like we run an independent festival that oh. we, we spent a year we spend a year or you know six or eight months each time talking about every band that's going to play the festival all 30 bands or whatever it is and we for each band when we release the announcement we we do a whole page about them we write essays we put the uh videos up and put the music on there we introduce you to each of them week by week we make the festivals entirely free so anyone can come and you never have to pay so make it as easy as possible to introduce you to all these bands we play them on our podcast we talk about it we film at my house every band like the festival might be that weekend but starting like tuesday of that week we film acoustic sessions at my house in the living room with every band and put them up on our page on the underwater sunshine website oh that's They're really awesome. cool that's um, very cool so, I mean, I feel like I'm doing all that stuff. So you do these in your house in, San, in uh, New York? The festival's at a club. But the filming. Is at my house, yeah. We have this area. I call it the garden. Um, when I first got my place, you know, uh, outdoor space is really expensive in New York. It costs so much money to get just a balcony. Right. Man, I bought this empty loft, you know, 20 years ago almost. Uh, and it had a lot of windows. didn't have any outdoor space. For a place half that size, it was like a million dollars more to have a little balcony. So what I did instead was... I put AstroTurf down at one end of the loft, 
and then put a bunch of garden furniture. And it, it feels like you're outdoors. And it's really cool. <laughs> so I got a piano in the middle of the AstroTurf. So we had the bands come and play. We call it the garden. It's just like this AstroTurf with beach furniture around it. Oh, that's funny. And the bands set up there and they play there. Let and me see the, what that looks like. There might be a picture. We're, uh, if you film oh, it. Oh, look on underwatersunshine.com. There's all kinds of, uh, they're called the garden sessions. And so, I mean, I do all that. And I don't feel like I fail anybody. Like the bands we're taking out on this uh, tour, Frank Turner's coming for the end of the tour, but I'm taking two of Underwater Sunshine bands out, two of the guys, Matt Susich and, and Sean Barna, both of whose records I sung on too. I do a lot of that. I sing on a lot of records, but mostly just with my friends. Is this it here? Yeah, that's like, that's my living room. That's a band called Scout. That's Laura from Scout. And you can see a couple of Felipe's paintings are in the background. This clock of mine is up there. I wish you'd show the, the lawn. It's really cool if you get a, a more distant shot because there you can see the green. Dude, this there. has 100 views. That's crazy. I know. Well, it's hard to promote stuff. See, that's but what that's, it looks like. That's bonkers. 100 views. You know, I, I don't have a, you know, I do what I can. It's I'm not wildly successful at the, the podcast or this, you know, but we play people's music. They're really good. That is kind of yeah. cool that you have a set up there with the astroturf it's hilarious and paintings behind you yeah so it looks it's like I've, all the press i've done for this record except for this i've done sitting right there i just put a chair there and we got some cameras and i've done every interview on zoom except for your interview and uh we even filmed for the today show uh and uh kimmel right there um because we couldn't really go there so we just did that i just love that you're so dedicated to music that just it's I, just I like 24 7 this is just I mean, I'm a music geek. I, I can tell. Yeah, I mean, How do you find new music? I look. I mean, I spend a lot of time looking. Like, look, we, you know, I've got about six or seven, well, maybe ten of us now together who work on the festival. And we're all like, some of us are musicians, some of them are journalists, some of them are bloggers. Uh, just people who really love working music. Um, you know, my partner, Barbara Rappaport, Barbara Garrett now, I met her when we were doing the Outlaw Roadshow, our first festival here in Austin during um, South by Southwest, and she started doing that with us, and then her and I started Underwater Sunshine years later. She lives in San Antonio now, but she's from down here, and it was a lot based on kind of, we would come down here and we would put this big festival on in the middle of South by Southwest. We would put on free shows with all these bands, like 30 bands at a show, like on many different stages over a couple days. Um, and we used to do, what did we do? We did the Rusty Spur for a few years. I don't know if it's still there even. It was up on, what street is it? Like 7th Street or 8th Street? I can't remember. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just kind of loved, also, it's nice to have peers again. You know, like when I was coming up in the clubs, I, I had a lot of friends who played music. And then when you get out there, unless you're going to hang out at the MTV Awards, you don't know a lot of people anymore. Right. Um, but then with the festivals, I, I got all these friends who play music. I sing on lots of records, but they're mostly just my friends' records. And they're really good, and I'm, like I'm really proud of them. And like we're taking Matt and Sean out on tour this summer. Um, they're gonna flip flop each night who plays first, so they'll they'll, they'll both get to play. Um, I, I kind of feel like I do all the stuff I used to do with the record company, and I never fail anybody, which is nice because I really felt it. Also, it cost me a lot of money. <laughs> a How much do you money. think you you blew on the indie know. record company? I had two different ones, but I'd say. If, Several million probably over the years. It just costs money to do that stuff. You know, you're supporting bands on the road. And and how'd you get out of it? Uh, at some point, I just stopped. The second company, I, I, it just after a few years, I just kind of just didn't want to do it anymore. Yeah. So I just we started doing the festivals, and I really like that. You know, I like, I like 
we're still helping out the bands. We're doing what we can do, you know, and like maybe it'll take off, you know. It's right. Even me, though, it's hard for people to discover it. Maybe if this record's really successful, everyone will check out Underwater Sunshine. We pack the house at all the festivals completely, but, you know, they're small clubs. We're like, trying to expand it this year. What size clubs are you doing? Well, Rockwood, I don't know. Rockwood has three stages. I don't know. It's, you know, probably a few hundred people, a few thousand over the course of the two nights come in and out. But we're spreading out to, like, two or three clubs this year at the same time. Make it like a little mini festival in the clubs there, and uh, we're also going to like do our show in New York with some of those bands opening. And Frank Turner's going to play it this year, which will give a little more exposure. What's so, yeah. cool? The intimate shows like that are fucking cool, anyway, man. To see a really good band in a hundred and fifty yeah. seat room is amazing. And and you get like it's almost like an amusement park because there's three stages going at once with staggered start times and you can just run to the ones you want to see you see meet a bunch of different people Mm -hmm. go between the clubs they're free so you don't have to worry about paying each time and it's just we also do the only thing we we, the only way the bands we don't pay either because they're free shows what we do do is we buy I think we did $400 we bought $400 worth of merch from every band so it enables us to give them $400 and then we set the merch up it stands at the show and we give it away free to the fans, so people can get their music, their CDs, their T-shirts for free, and it enables us to pay the band's money. Um, and it, it's just like make it as easy as possible to like expose people to these things. Well, it's also the spirit in which you're doing this is so pure, right? This is a completely non-profit venture. You're not trying to make money. You're just trying to distribute great music. I fucking love it, it, man. I just love hearing that you do it this way. It's really cool. You know, we wanted to sort of like expand because we've been doing all this music stuff for a while. And the last time we did it, which is now like October two years ago, I guess it was 2019, last time we did the festival. And uh, we had expanded to a place with three stages instead of two. It was really successful. But Kate Quigley came and she was hanging out for the whole thing. And she was like, man, you should add some comedy to this. Because we went out one night and watched an open mic with her. And she got up at it. And it was like when you were telling about the open mic earlier, I was really thinking about that. But uh, it's funny. Kate and I, we met because we matched on a dating site years ago. <laughs> but never met each other. But we sort of corresponded a little bit. So, but uh I hadn't talked to her in a long time, and I guess she wrote to me again later, and I was like, I'm just going to introduce her to my girlfriend. I introduced her to my girlfriend, my girlfriend, her best. It's the best way to be safe about things. Just right. any, any hot girl, introduce them to your girlfriend <laughs> so that they're like, they become best friends with your girlfriend. You never make a mistake ever, and, uh, and, and, your, and your girlfriend has cool friends. Right. And you get to hang out with people. Like, I always liked Kate. from I thought she was funny. And now I get to be her friend because there's nothing to worry about. She's best friends with my girlfriend. You know, so, like, I can be her friend from now on. It's awesome. You know, um, but yeah, we were, she was talking about how cool it would be to bring comedy into it too. Which I thought that would be a great thing. I got to figure out how to do it. That's a completely different kind of animal. It is. It is. And you be bring weird in a to mix it in. Completely different kind of mental illness into your little party there too. Well, you boot, do it at a different club. I'm not sure I'd mix them up on stages do in the it same in a different yeah. club. Yeah, because you want to be able to just run them like Listen get people lined up. Don't get involved. <laughs> Stay out. <laughs> just be, leave that to other people that are used to dealing with these fucking maniacs. You you understand music, right? And I know, yeah, yeah. you know comedians. It's not the same thing as understanding it. No, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. It's, I don't want to do a music festival. I would do. I would think about doing a comedy festival because they're my people and I get them. But I would not wish that upon anyone else to handle comedians. We'll, we'll put you in charge. Uh uh-uh. uh. <laughs> Nuh uh. Nuh uh. Seriously, it's great. It's your yeah. comedy festival with my name. Yeah. No. no, they do have several of them out here, right? They got Moon Tower. Um, what else do they have out here? There was another. There's more than one comedy festival out here, right? 
because South by Southwest, I think, was uh, a thing. I know, but I'm just saying. I, they had yeah, to... sort of. I mean, they have comedy at it, but Moon Tower is basically just comedy, right? Is that whole thing uh-huh. is, by yeah. the way, just for people who don't, who've never spent much time in Austin, that whole Moon Tower thing, the whole concept behind putting these towers around town that light up the town at night oh. and that all look like different little moons, that's a crazy fucking thing to do. That's I fantastic. I have not seen it. Oh, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. that's. There's I just stuff, thought it was a yeah. name. I didn't know they did that. No, they, no someone had an them? idea in like the 50s or 40s. It was a long time ago to build these big towers with these big lights on top of them. So there was almost like, instead of just being one moon to light up a town, there was a shitload of them. Like an alternative to streetlights in a way. Really? Like, yeah. dazed and confused. They're going to the fucking moon tower. I yeah, that's no part, and he's climbing up it. And there's like I think I've I've seen there's five of them I think yeah, around town. Yeah, most of them town. are gone. They're only yeah. Uh, it's very weird. Like, I, I, big like, fucking looks towers. <laughs> like I don't get it. It is the coolest idea ever. So it lights huh. up whole neighborhoods at night. So it's like you're not just in a dark shitty neighborhood. Like oh, that makes sense. So it's a little safer too, probably. Yeah, I mean that was kind of the idea to like really light up a town at night. And I, I don't think they have many. Like you said, there's five left, maybe? I think. I think there, there could be a couple more than five, point. but I remember looking this up when I first saw so it. 1890s. First put 1890s. up in the 1890s. So when did the, is Moon Tower a comedy festival, or yeah, is it just... It, it is that, too, yeah. And then that's the main one that pops up, Moon Tower Comedy Festival. Okay. It's probably because they go to the Moon Tower in Dazed and Confused in mm-hmm. Linklater's movie. Roy Wood Jr., powerful Roy Wood Jr. Interesting. I mean, it's a really <laughs> cool fucking thing for, like... It, it, this, this is a great college towns are the greatest thing on earth, and this is a really good one. You know, I mean, well, it, this is a little bit more than a college town. You know, it's because yeah. like it's a live music town. It's like it's got that whole Sixth Street has got this yeah. vibe to it that's so different. The downtown area is so different. You it's know, a great. It's town. really special. It really is. I mean, I, I grew up in a college town. I've always loved them. It was my favorite thing when we do just like the tertiary tours, like in those towns, as uh-huh. opposed to just the big cities. Like we would do the the big cities in the summertime, and then we used to do like in the fall and the spring. We would do the college towns more, uh, and it was such a. I mean, I just growing up in Berkeley, I've loved that kind of place, Bloomington, you know, Athens, Georgia, especially Austin. Um, but it was always really cool. But this one, like, because it turned into such a music town too, uh, it's just a. It's a blast. Yeah, it's an awesome town. It's a great sized place. This is what I always tell people. It's like it's only a million people, and then there's a million outside of it, and that's not that much. It's but it's good enough. Like it's plenty of room for great restaurants, yeah. great comedy clubs, great music. You know, you go down Sixth Street, like you'll hear great bands playing. You hear all these people, you never even heard of them before. You hear all this live music and people are walking around. There's a vibe, there's an energy to this town that's just different. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, when you get those towns that support music, it's usually a pretty uh, temporary and then it cycles out of it. Because if you have that area where musicians can live and play, there's usually some warehouses and they can get rehearsal spaces. You know, San Francisco used to be that way. Yeah. Uh, you know, but then they become cool places to live. And then people move into those areas and they want to live in those kind of warehouses. And then it gets upscale and right. eventually it fucks up. Bands can't afford it. And then someplace else becomes that area, you know. Yeah. But Austin's managed to stay, you know, like they keep Austin weird. It's managed to stay nice and weird for a long time now, you know. Yeah. Strange too, because it's the capital. Yeah, people yeah. are worried now because of like the Google and tech companies and yeah. Apple's putting a campus here and Oracle and they're like, oh my God, we're going to bring in the Silicon people. Well, that, that could do it too because if you get too upscale, it becomes hard to afford, you know, like just the rehearsal spaces, empty, uh, cheap places to rehearse. That'll kill the music. 
it did it in the Bay Area in some ways. Like it just got every every warehouse turned into condos. Yeah. You know? And the real estate here has gone bonkers. It's, yeah, I bet. it's very crazy. It's hard for people to find affordable places to live in Austin. They're all moving outside the outside area. But that's kind of normal, right? The normal expansion and spread. Yeah. But it's still it's still tolerable and manageable. Yeah. It still works. It's a good town that's managed to keep itself as that kind of a cool town for, a, I mean, a long time. Yeah. It also has the ethic of having small independent businesses uh, cherished as opposed to like chains. You know, it's like there's a lot of like, particularly restaurants, a lot of like independent individual places that are cherished. You know, there's like a, a vibe to that here. And they get supported. People go to yes. them. People line up for there's there's food here that people can't get because it's just gone by the time you get through the line. Yeah, and they've managed to keep that sort of vibe alive for a long time. Yeah, the, well, the barbecue vibe here is yeah. insane. It's so strong. Yeah, it is. Good too. Where have you gone in town? God, I don't know. I, have, I haven't been here in years. Have you been to Terry Black's? I had it last night. I, I had a delivery from it last night. Ooh. It was really good. I Ooh. think it was Blacks last night. Um, mm. I was trying to get it from uh, Styles. Uh, Styles. I haven't eaten there yet. But they they uh, were out of they <laughs> they called me back, which is something you don't get in New York. We, we're out of everything except for turkey. Wow. Like, well, okay. Well, I'm not gonna. <laughs> I don't want that. I want some. I want ribs. Yeah, turkey. Yeah. Like, come on, man. I'm trying not trying to be healthy here. What am I doing with this turkey? There was one. What's the name of that place? It was on way in the east side. They had a big poster up that said, "Don't need no teeth." To eat my beef. Oh yeah, I've uh, seen that. Uh, yeah, I don't remember the yeah. name of the place was. That was really good. Um, yeah, you get that Terry Black's brisket. You could chew it with your fingers. It just slices right through. That's, that's one of the things I was working on this year was try how to make like decent brisket house at park home. barbecue. That's what it is. Yeah, need no teeth to eat my beef. But I'm bummed. That place was great. I love the sign too. Yeah, I mean you know. uh Barbecue is a weird thing because it, it moves around the United States. You know, almost all came from the South. But, you know, depending on the area, what was going on, like Oakland, where I grew up, is big barbecue because everyone came out to the shipyards to work from the South in World War II. And so all this the whole community uh, of black people from the South ended up also because the South can be not a great place to live at times if you're black in the 50s and 40s. You know, came out to uh, California, ended up in Oakland. So had great barbecue there growing up. Adam Curry, do you know who he is? The original Podfather? He's the uh -uh. MTV VJ. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I do. He's out here now. He lives out here. But he's, he's literally the original podcaster. He's the Podfather. And he explained to me why Austin has this long history of barbecue. And it has to do with Germans, that Germans smoke meat. Like, oh, you know, right. like smoking. Right, yeah. smoking. And then they sort of adapted it to like brisket and ribs and, and Texas barbecue and it all became like this the central Texas barbecue became like a scene like it's a very specific way of barbecuing yeah like the stuff in it was more like I think I feel like the Oakland barbecue is closer to what I've had in Mississippi what kind of barbecue is that like it's, what, what is the style it's the sauce is a little sweeter mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's got a nice bark on it uh, I, there's just this place in Oakland that I really love called uh, Everett and Jones. It was actually, it's a little shack at the bottom of University in Berkeley. And then they actually opened a full-on restaurant in uh, in Oakland, in Jack London Square, like, 
I want to say a few years ago, but it must be 20 years ago now. But the shack was where I grew up going. And I still order barbecue sauce from them, get it shipped. They're, I love their sauce. I get it shipped to New York. Because mm. even if I get barbecue from a place, I, I generally don't love the sauce. So I, I keep my <laughs> Everett and Jones sauce. But also, that was one of the things I tried to do cooking this year was like, make a nice I don't have sauce. a smoker. How am I going to – no, not the sauce, but the meat. How am I – got to learn to make a good barbecue brisket in my oven. i got to figure this out. Maybe it's just a really low temperature for a long time. If I get up early in the morning, I, I rub it all with salt and brown sugar the night before. Did you figure it out? Kind of. It's, it's, it's really good. You don't um, have a patio? No, because remember, I didn't get the outdoor yeah. space. So, so I can't get a smoker. Um, but, uh, you know, I figured out ways to do it like just really low heat, like 200 degrees, and just start it at noon. It'll be ready by about 6. Keep it covered for the first two or three hours. Then take the the foil off, let it get some air uh, for the next two or three. Sometimes I'll I'll uh, sear it all first before I put it in. Um, yeah, it turns out pretty good. I mean, I did it. I wanted to make. I used my beef brisket recipe on a pork shoulder I had a little while ago and just cooked that. And I spent the next like three weeks eating pork sandwiches that were fucking incredible. Um, they were just thin sliced pork. Some of the best barbecue I've ever had is out of Van Nuys. Van Nuys, California, Dr. Hogley-Wagley's Hogley Tyler, 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 Texas, Texas Barbecue. barbecue. Damn good place. Oh, my God. It's fantastic. fantastic. That's the closest I've come to what – that's what Everett and Jones tastes like. Tyler, that place is like – you Unreal. don't understand why it's there. The neighborhood it doesn't make any sense where it's at, but it's been there forever. Yep. I think they've been there since the 70s. It's, it was there the whole time. I, I, I moved there, and it, I my A&R guy took me there while I was making the record in, like, 92 and – we would always make the trek out there. There's yes. nowhere else to get good barbecue. I don't care what they say. Uh, other, there's nowhere else to get good barbecue in L.A. Or there wasn't then. But doc, Dr. Hogley Wogley's, that shit is fantastic. Fantastic. And yeah. the people there are cool as fuck. And it's just, it's there's no pretentiousness to it. Yeah. They've got like shitty wood panel on the walls and dumb paintings that nobody gives a fuck about. It's all about the food. Yeah. They bring that brisket out there and you're like, oh my God, there it is. Yeah. Dr. Hogley Wogley's in Van Nuys. I, I, I mean, like that, that's indicative of like how weird it is. Like you look at the signs, like the fucking graffitis on the billboards and everything. And that's the inside, like right there. Scroll back up where you were. Right there. Bam. That's what it looks like inside. I mean, it's just like so unpretentious. Just booths and wood paneling. And look, look at that stupid fucking rodeo sign. Nobody the, gives a shit about it. No, they're not even looking. The they're ribs and the brisket there heaven. are off the hook. Everything's so great there. Good. The chicken's there, great yeah. there. Everything's great there. Their sauce but, is great, too. That yeah. is great. That is the closest. Look at that. Look That's at that, what Everett Jones is like. It tastes oh just like Hoggy Wogglies, which and is like southern Mississippi barbecue. Brisket just melts in your mouth. Oh, my God. It's sensational. Absolutely. I knew exactly what you were going to say <laughs> the moment you said Van Eyes. I was like, yes. Because yeah. L.A. can have a lot of places that look just like great restaurants look. Right. But the, it, that aren't as good. But that place, that yeah. is the shit, man. It that is place is so the shit. fucking good. It's the shit, and it's like a, a hidden spot. It's like yeah. you go there, you're like, what is happening here? Why are you here? What is this? Like, you w wish it was in town, but no, it's better. Stay out here. Yeah. Stay right in this weird little neighborhood of Van Nuys next to a barber shop and shit. You know, it's just, it's cool. We would trek out there. I, I, when I lived, I, I bought this. I had too many people living to me, with me at that cottage. Too many friends that came out. Half of New Orleans came out and lived with me. In mm -hmm. uh, all my friends from New Orleans came out and lived with me in that cottage. And eventually, I bought a house in Beverly Hills. I bought a big old mansion so that all of us could live there because there was like ten of us living at my house. And I bought this big place. But we would we would take treks out. Someone would just get us go 
to Hoggly Wogglies to bring it all back. Or we'd go out there together, but we would bring like dinner back for everyone from yeah. Hoggly Wogglies. Yeah, they they have great to go. Yeah, the, the, uh, it's the big trays of brisket and meat. Oh, this place is so now I'm good. hungry. Yeah, Adam, I really enjoyed talking to you, man. Joe, really, thank you, man. Really, I appreciate this. This was very cool. I really, really enjoyed it. it. Like I said, I've been a fan forever, so it means a lot that Thank you came you. in here and did this. And so your album, it's available now. You gave me a physical copy. Thank you very yeah. much for that. Um, can people get it digital? It's available everywhere. Yeah, it'll be it'll Tell- be digital. The only way you can get it, there's no CD, so we made vinyl, and it's on. It's digital everywhere. And uh, oh, I forgot to tell you one. We're gonna go on tour. Uh, we're gonna leave. We're gonna go on tour in August in America. August, September, October. We are. Um, how can anybody find out about that? Countingcrows.com. They'll put and all the shit up. they'll have the tour up. dates. And when will they be announced? Today. This is me doing it. Oh. I'm not sure the exact. We're not going to go on sale for a few weeks, but I think the dates will be up today on the website. And uh, this is the first I've told anybody about it. Oh. Yes. So we are. That's exciting. Breaking are you news right here. here? Uh, we are coming to Austin. Yes. When? Well, we're playing the Moody Amphitheater, and I don't. I could look it up. I have it on my phone somewhere. I, I took a picture of the schedule. Breaking news. Great minds, man. Great minds. <laughs> um, uh, here it is. So, Austin, where the hell are you? Austin, still in Texas. Right here, Moody Amphitheater at Waterloo. Wednesday, September 15th. Beautiful. Yeah. Okay. Shit. Why? I might not be how I might not be here. Where are you going? You going on tour? I'm not sure. I might be here. I might be elk hunting. Okay. Yeah? See him here? I think. Well, you Jamie can come anywhere you want. There's plenty of places. Okay. Well, you know. I would love it to see you here. What do you hunt with when you hunt elk? Bow and arrow. You're hunting bow hunting? Yes. No shit. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm just curious. Yeah, that's what I do. I've never hunted with a bow and arrow. Mostly because I would miss, and if I hit it, yeah, it's, to chase it, I it, practice it is, yeah. a lot, yeah. a lot. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, an obsession. It's not a like a thing you just go and do. It's a thing that I practice all year round. I, I'm a big archery fanatic. I have, wow, I have like a 3D range in my backyard with a giant rubber elk, 85 yards that I shoot. Yeah, I shoot all the time, constantly. Wow. Yeah, and it's one of the things I do every year to acquire meat I go and uh, bow hunt I did some of that with my when I was in England because uh, I was on my own so I would I would uh, you know spend days just hunting rabbits and then I kind of liked cooking for myself after after doing that oh yeah man yeah, cooking something that you've actually went out and harvested yourself is is something special pheasant a lot of pheasant and and rabbit Rabbit, yeah. har- different. I mean, obviously very different. Pheasant's a shotgun thing. and rabbits. I've only uh, pheasant hunted once with uh, Anthony Bourdain, and he got one. He got one, and I missed it. I missed one. It's a different kind of thing than aiming at something. You know, this is a movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's like. Bang. It's like. Yeah. I'm, I'm not adept with shotguns. I need to learn how to, like, I think there's, like, there's got to be something to it. Yeah. Like the, some technique that I'm missing. You got to lead it. You think yeah. about it as a cone, like you're throwing a net in front right. of something. It's a different, it, it definitely, the, one of the reasons I think I got into it is because since you miss the first hundred times, mm-hmm. you, you lose all sympathy for the bird. You hate it so much after you've missed it 50 <laughs> times. It's like, you know, fuck you. I don't have any sympathy for you right. anymore because you've been fucking with me for an hour now and, uh, you know. All right, man. Well, let's wrap this up. Thank, Thank you very you. much for being here and uh, I appreciate it. And Butter Miracle, 
out now. Yep. Everybody can get it. Go get it. Support live music. And your f- music festival is when again? Underwater Sunshine. It's going to be in October. We'll finish up the tour in New York and then just the festival right after that. Woo! Bye, everybody. Bye.